to be another way out of that. A new holiday was born. A festivus for the rest of us. This new holiday of yours is scratching me right where I itch. Let's do it then. All right. Festivus is back. Ladies and gentlemen. No network, no rules, and at the end of the day, my friends, no comparison. Uh, this is Tim Benall, of course, coming at you with what is uh, our 15th and final BOA Audio Holiday Special featuring Stanton Friedman, as you heard on the intro. Uh, wow, that was good timing. We have a couple of special guests here tonight, and uh, <laughs> I was waiting to see if uh, they were going to have me stalling for too long, but thankfully it looks like they're both uh, here, which is great. Um, it's kind of weird in a sense because I announced this show last night, and I think, like, I, I guess people aren't in the same bubble as uh, as the rest of us because a couple of people seem to just receive the sad news via the announcement of the show. But I think most but all of America listeners are aware. Uh, of course, we lost Stan uh, this past May. Um, you know, it was... I'm heartbroken over the whole thing. I really am. It was a heartbreaking, uh, heartbreaking news to get. Uh, as anyone who's listened to the show knows, I absolutely love Stan Friedman. Um, he was my favorite person to have on the show. We built a whole holiday special around him. Uh, this would have been our 15th year uh, doing this, which is amazing. And uh, as I was getting ready to do the show, uh, when you're listening to this later on MP3, you'll hear, like, we'll have some clips and stuff in there, but I was trying to pull clips, and it was just like, I was blown away by how much stuff we had, how much, how long we had talked, I think it was like 30 hours worth of conversations with Stan, it was absolutely unbelievable, um, uh, Stan was the first guy I ever interviewed, if I, I always credited him with this, if, if, uh, you know, if he hadn't been so nice and friendly back in 2000 and. I don't even know, five, 2004, I guess. No, 2005, yeah. Um, you know, I might have been like, ah, forget it. These people these people aren't cool at all, man. But uh, he was so nice and, and friendly, uh, and he was such a huge star. It was like, wow, this is unbelievable. Um, and <laughs> I guess uh, over the course of my career, I, I just wanted Stan to, to, to fucking know who I was. Like if just that would be would be amazing, and um, it went so far beyond that that it was an amazing experience. So tonight 
We're going to celebrate Stan. We're going to close the book here on the holiday special. Um, and we're going to remember our, our dear friend here with two very special guests. I've, I've had this, this program in mind, uh, you know, uh, shortly after Stan passed away. So it was kind of, I've been both looking forward to this and kind of dreading it, but knowing that uh, we were going to do it for real. And I'm um, so happy to have these guys on the program. First of all, coming all the way from Canada, uh, he is, I like, to call, I like to call him a paranormal pundit because we've had a laugh over that line many a times, but uh, he's a filmmaker. He made an absolutely amazing movie about Stan uh, called Stanton T. Friedman is Real, um, which I highly recommend. We'll get links up uh, at Benalva America to that. Uh, really, really, we'll talk a little bit more about it tonight. Um, and, of course, he was uh, Stan Friedman's nephew and a powerhouse, as I said, paranormal pundit in his own right. Uh, uh, Paul Kimball coming all the way from Halifax. Thanks for joining us, Paul. Can you hear me, Tim? Tim? I can hear you. <laughs> I can hear you, Paul. Oh, good. Because we I was having a microphone problem earlier, so I have sorted that out. Excellent. Yes, yes. All right. Uh, we got your Christmas you, tree. What's that? <laughs> Sorry, you got our Christmas tree. Uh, for a minute there, I was thinking my wife and I ordered a, a fake tree from Canadian Tire a week ago, and it hasn't been delivered yet. So I thought you meant they delivered my Christmas tree to Boston. That would be bad. Not, not that I'm aware of, no. And uh, coming in to us from the great state of Michigan, uh, he is the host uh, of The Saucer Life, which I think is uh, the best weekly uh, UFO paranormal podcast out there. Uh, it's absolutely outstanding. Uh, I've put him over a million times. Uh, I, I said this on Twitter a few weeks ago, and I meant it because uh, when you look at sort of the the rogues gallery of UFO historians, uh, Aaron Golia stands head and shoulders above all of them. Uh, he is a legit researcher and historian with an appreciation for this subject and the characters in this field, but... And he said he might want to put this on a business card. He's not beholden to the UFOs. Uh, whatever happens with the, whether or not UFOs are real, whether or not any of this, you know, he's just documenting this. He's observing it, uh, and he's doing an absolutely fantastic job. And as I said, he stands head and shoulders above a lot of folks who bill themselves as UFO historians. So uh, I wanted to get him on here to help celebrate Stan's life and legacy because I can't think of anyone else who has a better understanding of that legacy uh, than Aaron Goulia. So welcome to the show, Aaron. Thank you. Good to be here. That introduction was rich. That was great. That, that was nice. Yeah, I like that. I mean it, man. You're, you're doing some of the best <laughs> stuff out there. Uh, it's it's Thank tremendous. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I guess, I, I, you know, uh, I guess we'll kind of like just dive in. I don't even know really where to begin. I guess the one one sort of question that, that popped into my head knowing I was going to be talking to you guys, something I never – I don't think I ever asked you, Paul, and that was like – because you had this really unique, obviously, unique relationship with Stan. Um, so, like, when did you realize – like, wh- how, did, how did Stan come into your life? Like, when did you realize that your uncle was – this 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 mighty UFO titan, if you will. Well, he he married into the family well, probably over 40 years ago now, my dad's sister, and moved to Canada in Fredericton. As a kid, I knew him. They'd come down and visit. Um, I went to see a couple of his lectures when he would be in Halifax. I think our whole family 
went to see one at Mount St. Vincent University here in Halifax. And, you know, there was a really large crowd, I think, for that one. That was a long time ago, but I remember hundreds, I think, in this university auditorium. I saw him speak at Acadia University here in Nova Scotia, where I was going to school. I actually moderated that one, I think. And again, he, he had two, three, four hundred people in the audience. So that was back in the 80s, 70s and 80s, when he was a very big draw. Um, but until I made the film about him in 2001, uh, I had no real, I had, a, I had a passing interest in UFOs. I had no knowledge or interest in the subculture, really. I knew I had a cool uncle that when I went to family reunions, I could chat with him about um, space aliens and Star Wars, which he would talk about. But mostly what Stan and I would talk about was baseball um, because he was a Brooklyn Dodgers fan from long, long ago when he grew up in New Jersey. And I'm a huge baseball fan. So we would talk a lot about baseball. And um, over the course of knowing him for 40 years, first as a kid and then as an adult and working with him sometimes, uh, if I had to put it in percentages, I'd say we talked about UFOs 25% of the time, maybe. And we talked about other things 75% of the time because Stan had a very right. broad range of interests. So I found Stan interesting first, not for his UFO stuff. He was clearly popular within that subculture. Um, I, I found him interesting because he was an interesting guy. He was intelligent. He was well-spoken. He was funny. Um, and as you said in your introduction, he was genuine and nice. So I was the annoying nephew at 16 who, who wanted to talk to him. Um, so everybody you know, we all talk to each other at the family reunions, but uh, I, I really enjoyed talking to Stan. So that's kind of how I knew him. It was only years later when I made the film about him that I, I mean, I knew how big he was, I guess, within ufology, whatever ufology was. But once I went to my first conference in L.A., a MUFON symposium, where I first I filmed the beginning of that film, I sort of realized just how big a celebrity he was within ufology. Yeah. Now, being a big celebrity yeah. within ufology is still a small celebrity in the grand scheme of things. But within that world, within that culture, he was he was huge. But that was 2001. He was all it was an interesting conference because he was still big, but he was being eclipsed by Stephen Greer because um, that was when Greer was in the ascendancy and the disclosure yeah, movement yeah. and all that sort of stuff was really starting to take off. And I remember they had tables next to each other, Greer and the disclosure people at one table, Stan at another table. And people were still coming to talk to Stan, but more people were going to Greer. And I asked a couple of people, I said, you know, is this, is this kind of how it's always been? And they just shook their heads and went, no, this, this is new. And even Stan acknowledged that, you know, that was almost 20 years ago. His time was passing and there was this new group that was, that was coming up. And he was both, he was jealous. He was, he was jealous of it. Um, but he also recognized that all things change, and he was just going to keep doing. He he wouldn't alter what he did or how he did it to sort of compete with them for viewers or for fans or whatever. He just said, well, I'm just going to keep doing what I do. And if people want to come see me, great, even as his audiences got smaller and smaller and Greer's got bigger and bigger. And then other people stepped in like Dolan and, and others came in and, and became the celebrities. And Stan always had an attitude that, as his career and life wound down, you know, that's that's the way it works. That's the course of things. So when you guys were here for the Esotericon, which was the last time I saw Stan in person back in 2017, we had, what, 25 people, maybe yeah. 30? Yeah. And so I, I yeah. remember seeing Stan speak in Halifax, the University Auditorium. The first time I saw him speak, there had to be four or 500 people there. And at the end of his career, speaking in Halifax, 
well publicized. We did radio and everything. We had maybe, and it was free. You didn't even have to pay to come. So he had maybe <laughs> yeah. at, at best there were 30, 35 people, including me and my sister. So there were two relatives there. So that, you know, and Stan was fine. The great thing about Stan was he was fine with that. Whereas many people would see their fame slipping away or, or the crowds becoming smaller and they'd, they'd change. He didn't. He was comfortable in his own skin. And that's what I sort of admired most about him, I guess. Yeah, yeah. He it, it's interesting in a sense. He's kinda he, he had sort of like it was kinda like the movie The Wrestler in a way, where it was like he, he just he, he hung in there all that time. He he was just gonna keep you know, like Bob Dylan just keeps touring. It was uh I was surprised when he I was surprised when he retired and then kind of but not really surprised that like it never really turned into uh, a genuine retirement because he kept doing speaking engagements. But I guess from what I heard, he after he quote unquote retired, that he got bored sitting around, and then it was like, well, I can take a few. <laughs> what the hell? I'm not doing anything else otherwise. So uh, that was it, like it didn't my understanding. Surprise, it, was, it didn't surprise any of us in the fa- in the broader family. Um, he, it was like the wrestler in one way, yes, fading star, all that sort of stuff. But it was absolutely not like the wrestler in another way. Stan was very um, happy with his life. He had a loving family. Right. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. The, the Mickey Rourke character in the wrestler is is a terrible, sad. Yeah, yeah, character. that's a dark movie. I didn't mean to. Yeah, I yeah. thought of that when I was trying to make the comparison. It, it, it wasn't. It was more just sort of like this this sort of like traveling showman through the years thing. You know that you really captured in the movie too. Uh, that I liked a lot. Like that that movie. People have. I, I w- begged Stan for uh, a, a biography over the years, like many, many, many times, and I was—I uh, had seen the movie a long time ago when I first got into all this, um, but ha- I watched it again after Stan passed away, and I was really blown away. I got to give you credit, man. I was really blown away. You really, cap- there's a lot of biographical information in there that otherwise I, that I hadn't even heard, and I—I'd interviewed him. Probably, I think I interviewed him a total of 17 times. So I was I was amazed. It's a great movie. Oh, thanks. Yeah, well, Stan, Stan was a great interview, and um, you know I also gave his critics uh, not equal space, but I gave them fair space, like Carl Flock and Kevin Randall, who was critical of Stan on MJ12. And Stan was perfectly fine with that. He said, "Yeah, Carl and Kevin, they're they're good guys. They I disagree with them. Let them have their say, and then let people will get what was it Oliver Cromwell once said? Paint me with warts and all. And so Stan. Mm-hmm. Um, was willing, especially as he got older, he said, paint me with warrants and all. People disagree with me. That's fine. I'm happy to have the, the conversation, the debate. Um, he was the anti-Trump. <laughs> he, he, was, he was not, he, he had an ego, but he was not, you know, narcissistic. He was not concerned with his appearance or anything. He, towards the end, at least, he, he was just a good guy going out and doing what he liked doing. Now let me bring you in on this conversation now, Aaron. I feel like we've we've uh, yeah. we got to bring you in here now, Matt. So talk about. <laughs> as I, I loved. I just said how much I loved Paul's movie. I, I absolutely loved the the Saucer Life episode. Uh, you know the the rest in peace Stan, uh, the, the goodbye to Stan episode. I, I I've, I've listened to it a few times since then, uh, in in the ensuing months. So I guess talk about uh, what you see is as Stan's indomitable, really, legacy on this field. It's absolutely un, uh, you know, it's almost unfathomable how, how huge an impression he left on, on, the, on the UFO on UFO world and really the paranormal, I think, in general. I think he was sort of like, 
you know, if, if you were going to yeah. do like a Mount Rushmore <laughs> of just like faces, you know, the, the car, you know, mainstream people with within this field, he would he would be on there, I think. But but fire away, brother. Oh yeah, absolutely, he would be. Um, and and it's interesting. Stan's one of those people that one of the few UFO people that non-UFO people uh, recognize. I've found right, um, right. Because they, because he's been in in everything. They've seen something on Roswell. They've seen Stan, and they've heard Stan. And he you know he had the he had the distinctive look and the the beard, and, and he had that great that great voice. I think everybody. Uh, everybody under the over the age of about you know 25 has pro- who's interested in any of this has seen Stan at some point, and Stan was just about the biggest name in ufology, sort of in the sort of public eye of ufology uh, at the time when you know ufology was was big. Because I mean, you can talk about all the stuff that's going on now, but it's it's not big. It's it's like anything else. It's, it, every, everything is competing for ever smaller shares of attention, um, and and so you know Stan was the, the last great mass media UFO guy, I think, and uh, he really was in that sense sort of the heir to the Donald Kehoe's of uh, of of the field, and we can look at his you know his uh, his work on Roswell as being you know, sort of very sort of fundamental to Roswell even being a thing. And we can look at, you know, his, his, um, his being a proponent of uh, MJ-12 and the the sort of Majestic 12 document stuff. Um, But even broader than all that, from the 1960s up until 2019, he was out there speaking to audiences, being on TV, being interviewed on the radio, in newspapers. He was everywhere. So I, I think, you know, just even leaving aside the specifics of some of the things he, he's associated with in particular, um, in general, Stan was the UFO guy in a lot of cases. And, and people, people recognize him. And, uh, and he, was, he was huge with that. And it's, um, it's so strange. that I'm, I'm so grateful that I, I was actually able to meet him in person um, you know, last year, I, I, I never thought I'd, I'd be able to, but I was, and it was great because he was just such a, such a major figure in this sort of post sixties phase of ufology. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we talked about this when I was up in Canada with you guys, not at the esotericon, but a few years earlier, we were sort of talking about the greatest ufologist, let's say. And I, I think he was, I think he was the tops, man. I really do because of the sheer, longevity of his career and uh yeah he was like you're saying he was the roswell guy obviously and and later he kind of became the roswell slash mj12 guy but really his sort of mo was just advocating for all this that's kind of what his thing i mean his 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 textbook his trademark uh presentation was flying saucers are real you know, it was like, he, and he yeah. sort of laid out that case. Uh, I think he kind of mentioned it on the Saucer Life, where it's like, you know, and people who listen to the holiday show know this very well. They love it. Uh, that, that he had his, he had his, his greatest hits, and you knew when they were coming. And they were, you know, if you'd seen him enough times or heard him enough times, you really kind of grew to love them because it was, it was just so cool. He would just bust out the the rules for debunkers or silly effort to investigate, or or the whole thing with, like, Project Blue Book, Special Report 14. It's like I, I, can, I can rattle these all off, like, like off the top of my head, 
just from having heard him so many times. Yeah. And, uh, and it's it, it, yeah. It's, no, it's one of those things where where he um he gets he gets kind of pigeonholed as as one guy or another guy, but he was he was just an, he was an advocate for the reality of the phenomenon first and foremost. Right. And MJ12 and Roswell were sort of the twin um, the twin pillars of that in a way because you had the the you know in, in his in his argument the proof of extraterrestrial visitation with the Roswell crash sort of like undeniable proof and with both Roswell and MJ12 you have evidence of the uh, the government cover up and and those two things you know you talk about his his greatest hits his catchphrases cosmic Watergate man it was yeah. you know that this this cosmic Watergate phrase and and that um, you know it's it, it's just one of those one of those um, one of those things that that will be forever linked with it. You know, you see people using that phrase all over the place who probably have no idea that Stan was the one who uh, who innovated that um, and, and who popularized that uh, that that way of phrasing it. But he was uh, he was an advocate for the reality of the phenomenon and the reality of a government cover up about it. And if if you want to look at you know, where ufology has gone, you know, in the last two generations, three generations. I mean, a lot of it, a lot of it we can sort of, you know, lay at, lay at Stan's feet. Yeah, you know, I, I liken it to music. He was the U2 of ufology, by which I mean, like, the biggest thing in the world. Not everybody likes U2. Some people sort of resent U2. And then you get a guy like Jacques Vallée. And if you talk to the UFO in crowd, everybody loves yeah. Vallée. I like Vallée, yeah. too. Vallée's fine. But I'm willing to bet Vallée's obituary won't be printed in the New York Times when he passes away. I might nope. be wrong, but I, I don't think it will. I don't think, you know, the Boston Globe and all the little local papers here. I, I When Stan died, one of the first calls I got or messages was from the New York Times. They had been referred to me by uh, my cousin Stan's daughter Melissa because uh, I had some photos of Stan and they wanted to use them I think they eventually used one and uh, I went to the New York Times I've talked to the New York Times twice in my life once when Mac Tony's died and they were running an article eventually about post-humanism and and oh, how right. you live yeah. you can live beyond which was in the Times magazine and the other one was when they called me after Stan passed away. And so there, is, there was his obituary. I think he was there with a Formula One race car driver and a, and a poet laureate or something. He was right there. And that is a sign, whatever the current incumbent of the White House thinks of the failing New York Times, if your obituary is in the New York Times, you had a career that mattered, that spoke to people. So valet exactly. kind of like the replacements, you know, a band in the, the 80s that – People really liked. They were the cool band that folks looked at and went, ah, they're hip and cool, and they never sold out like you too. And maybe Stan, maybe Stan in some ways did sell out in a sense. You know, he became the media voice. He wasn't selling out. He was buying in. But by buying in, he, he opened up a much greater platform. And you, yep. there's, there's no Kevin Randall without Stan, as much as Kevin no. disagreed with Stan. There's no Roswell case without Stan. Yeah. That You never hear Jesse Marcel's name. You never have a television series. You never have any of that stuff. And there's a lot of people in ufology, or at least some, that would go, good, I wish we didn't have Roswell. But you know what? If you hadn't had Roswell spurring on a reinterest in, UFO in UFOs in the late 70s into the 80s, I'm not sure you'd have ufology right now. For all no, the bad stuff I, that Roswell yeah. brought, ufology right, was on right. its last legs. 
And Stan, it was like that Pulp Fiction thing where they put the shot of adrenaline in, in Uma Thurman's heart. <laughs> and yeah. that's what, and for good and ill, that's what Roswell was. And Stan was much more than just Roswell. But yes. if Roswell is yep. what defines ufology, then Stan created what defines ufology and discovered it and then nurtured it and then put it out there. And sure, Bill Moore's name is on the book, but you know Stan wrote most of that. So uh, Stan yeah. is the icon is a word that gets tossed around too much, but with or legend, but within ufology, Stan is that guy, and he's the only one I can think of who transcended ufology into the popular culture uh, in my lifetime. And I include you know Rich Dolan, I include Jacques Vallée, I include all those guys, Dick Hall, great researcher, Jim Mosley, the, the you know the court jester, all those guys. Stan's the only one that people, if you saw him on the corner of the street, they might know him. And that's that's his legacy. I would absolutely thought that. I think J. Allen Hynek is the Kate. Uh, J. Allen Hynek is the Kate Bush of ufology. I think, and and I like <laughs> your your replacement analogy for uh, for Jacques Vallée. Um, but yeah, ab- absolutely. And my first my first sort of conscious exposure to Stan, I think, was probably in. Um, I mean, I, I'd heard him on uh, on radio interviews and, and things like that, but I uh, I remember buying his uh, Top Secret Magic book. In um, I, I was just out of college, like 1998, and I remember buying that because I had um, years before had read about the MJ12 papers in Howard Bloom's Out There, and uh, it sounded you know pretty legit to me, right? So I, uh, I I bought Stan's book and I read it, and I, I remember thinking it's like you know what I, it's not. He's not convincing me, but I I like reading this, and I I respect the earnestness, and you know there a lot of he put a lot of work into something that um, that I know he was who was convinced about. Um, if I'm not convinced, that's you know not uh, not necessarily his fail. I think he he took the evidence that existed for that further than almost anybody else would have been able to. But I remember reading that and thinking that this guy is. You know, I'm going to read his other stuff, and then you know, all the rot read read all his Roswell stuff, and and read most of his books as they uh, as they came out. And he was he was always sort of just consistently interesting and uh, and engaging in the books. And, and the books reveal a much uh, a much sort of broader uh, base of UFO interest, especially his later books, than um, than we got with uh, with just his uh, sort of greatest hits package, you know, in his presentations. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, he, he deserves a lot of credit, too, and kind of like what Paul was saying, I'm sure groans from some circles in the audience, but he, I think he deserves a lot of credit. He really kind of revived the Betty and Barney Hill case, like in the last decade or so, too, which was sort of a surprise, uh, you know, and twilight of his career arc, in a sense. Uh, you know, he, he, he co-wrote that book with uh, with Kathleen Martin and kind of really sort of had a hand, I think, and and kind of building up this Exeter event up here near me. And so, you yeah. know, he, he, uh, he, I think that case probably without the attention that he afforded it, uh, like I said, in the last 10 years or so with, with alongside Kathy, obviously, um, I think that's one of those cases that would have kind of been relegated more, you know, into sort of the periphery of the field in a sense, like a, like the VS Boas story or something like that, you know? 
Yeah, I, I think it would have been it would have been you know the first abduction or the second abduction that sort of would have been its pigeonhole. And I think um, Stan bringing his, uh, his his sort of scientific perspective, or at least the physics based perspective to it, looking at that and look at the astronomy of it. I think uh, as well as the the abduction uh, tropes that were part of that. I think it, it really did uh, it really did help keep it uh, keep that case really alive and humming. And he wrote that, uh, that other book, uh, flying, uh, flying saucers and science, I think. Was yeah, the name that's of a great it, book. Or, or, yeah. Science and flying saucers or flying saucers and science. And, and that just, I remember reading, speaking of him and science, I think it was in Mosley's autobiography. Um, when he sort of talked sort of semi humorously and semi bitterly about basically Friedman doing to him what Mosley had done to Kehoe back in the day, which was basically undercut Kehoe on prices and muscle into the college lecture circuit. And then by the late 60s, Stan did the same thing to Mosley. And Mosley said something about, you know, you know, it sort of hurt Stan that he never had a PhD because, you know, you know, he just had the, the, the master's degree. And I was, you know, thinking that that's, you know, that doesn't hurt his credibility at all because Stan was, I don't know how you would even say it. He's sort of an occupational physic, uh, you know, nuclear physicist, right? He worked in industry. He worked in engineering. He wasn't right, a right. theoretician or, 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 you know, something like that. And you, um, you, you sort of, I was, I watched Stanton T. Friedman is real uh, earlier this evening um, to, oh, wow. uh, to sort of get ready for, to get ready for this. And um, one thing that, that I never really picked up on in any other interviews is, is his transitioning in 6972 full-time flying saucer lecturing basically because the nuclear-based propulsion industry kind of you know there, it, it didn't pan out the way that everybody thought it would so that sort of aspect of, of his, he sort of needed you know was looking for a new direction to go into and he was able to uh, make that segue into uh, into flying saucer lecturing i, I think that's uh I think there's a, a whole bunch of interesting stuff to be written someday about, you know, Stan's work in those fields. And, and maybe when the archivists are finished going through his papers, um, we'll have some, uh, some great new information, not just about his life as a UFO researcher and lecturer, but his life as, uh, as a scientist and engineering type as well. Yeah, he would, he would tell the story – uh, which I always liked. He'd say, "Yeah, I used to do that." And they give you a brief. They said they give you a briefcase, kid. Here it is. It's handcuffed to your wrist. You're going on a plane. If the plane crashes, we don't care about you, but the briefcase survives. Like you know, <laughs> whatever's it. And it's like, Stan, do you know what's in the briefcase? And Stan would be like, "No, never asked. Wasn't my. I was just moving it from place to place." But he worked under top secret clearance on on some really weird and far out stuff and some more prosaic stuff too. Yeah, I think he was a consultant on the Point Lepro nuclear power plant in New Brunswick, for instance. He worked, I believe, in the 80s in New Brunswick on seed irradiation. So he continued to keep his oar in the sort of world of science, even as it, the UFO stuff became his primary income. But as far as Mosley goes, I talked to both of them because I knew Jim pretty well. And, um, and Stan was like, yeah, I, I had a wife, you know, I had kids to feed. This was my job. And why should and some people would always say, well, Stan was just doing it for the money. No, he would. But yes, but I get paid to do what I do, Aaron. You get paid to yep. do what you do. Why should Stan getting paid to do what he did so well ever be a, a black mark against him? It shouldn't. And Mosley, 
in shockingly close to the truth, which he authored with Carl Flock, but also to me personally, uh, more than once said, you know what? I was angry at the time that I was losing these gigs to Stan, but looking back on it now, he was better than I was. He was a better mm-hmm. speaker. Yep. He was more of a go-getter. Yeah. He had that hustle that came from the poor kid. You know, Stan came from an immigrant family in New Jersey. Mosley came from wealth. Um, Mosley yep. wasn't lazy, but he was a dilettante. Stan was a hustler and a worker. And dilettante is not a word you would use with him. So Stan just flat out out-hustled Mosley. <sighs> and then he, he flat out out-hustled everybody else, including Kevin and Carl and anyone else. And if you got in his way when he was trying to make a living, yeah, Stan had sharp, as they say in ice hockey, I say that for your American listeners, we just call it hockey. <laughs> but as they say, you know, Aaron, you'll appreciate this. Gordy Howe, great Detroit Red Wings legend. Yeah. He, had sharp el- he had sharp elbows. And yeah. sure, he was the greatest player of his generation. But if you screwed around with him, he'd put an elbow in your, in your jaw and knock you down on the ice and break your jaw. And Stan was kind of like Gordy Howe. He wasn't Wayne Gretzky. He wasn't, you know, like he was he could be tough in the corners, too, because it was a business. But he, he also mm-hmm. had the talent so that, you know, if he was a hockey player, he was Gordy Howe. Um, and that <laughs> I like that about him, too. Well, yeah, that, Jim, it, Jim that, kind of, not. <laughs> that kind of raises an interesting uh, observation that I had this summer. Um, I've been to a few different paranormal presentations, uh, you know, conferences. And at one point at one of them, I won't say who the the person was, but I I just sort of like, it it just kind of like crossed my mind that just how great an entertainer Stan was, Uh, you know, watching these other presentations, it was like, boy, I really miss Stan, dude. He was, he he, like, (laughs) like, I would actually want to sit and watch his presentation because it was a show. And, and, and some of these uh, ones, you know, a lot of these people, when they do presentations, they're really kind of, like, bland. So, uh, or very sort of, like, they try to be academic or something. He he had this whole, he had the whole routine down. I know, obviously, it comes from years of, of doing it. But at the same time, it was, he was just so good, man. He was just such a good performer, really. That's, that you know, beyond even the science and all that stuff. Yeah. Paul, and, what do you think I, of that? I, I, oh. No, go ahead, Aaron. Aaron, go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say, you know, I, I just because I, I watched the documentary again tonight. He, in his high school years, he had sort of these these two things that that sort of he did in high school. He was on the debate team, and then he his senior year he did drama club and was in a couple of plays and really loved that. So you've got the sort of the sort of research and argumentation based, you know, hobby slash skill, and then you've got the showmanship. And he had right. both of those things so well. And and I don't think there's, I don't there, there aren't many people out there I can think of who have the same properly balanced setup of research and showmanship to the degree yeah. that uh, to the degree that Stan did. And you know I and I think part of that is that ufology has changed. I I, I think I'm not sure. I, I don't know, but ufology has changed. Um, there's there's many reasons why people like Stephen Greer became popular as, as Stan, uh, Stan's star began to wane. Um, but, uh, you know, I, Stan just had it. And um, I don't think anybody else, I don't see many people who have that. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's crazy. Like when a lot of times, go ahead, Paul, go ahead. <laughs> I'm, no, go having, ahead. I'm having trouble navigating the traffic tonight, folks, but uh, bear with me. Go, go ahead, go. Paul. 
Go. No, I was just going to say, Stan. Stan was an entertainer, not only um, in high school, Aaron, with the um, debating and uh, the drama club, but he, when he went to college, worked in the Catskills, in the Borscht oh, Belt, wow. as he used to say. Yeah. Oh, um, I didn't know that. With, and because Stan was Jewish, he would always say, with the Jewish comedians that would work the Borscht Belt. And he worked as, I believe, a waiter. <laughs> and so he got to Stan, you know, he's working stuff, but he, he watched these guys so and he look. saw how to, how to be an entertainer. And he always knew, and he was always very clear. He said, yep, part of what I have to do is entertain, inform, get it out there, but do it in a way. He, there are you, like, I cannot imagine. There's a show, there was a show years ago in Canada called Switchback. And I remember Stan came down, it was filmed here in Halifax, and a guy named Stan the Man Johnson was the host. And they did the Halloween special. And so Stan was staying with us, and he went over to Switchback. And this was in the 80s, and he, he was wearing his turtleneck. He kind of looked like J. Allen Hynek. He had the turtleneck. He had the tweed coat. Um, and we tuned in, uh, the family on CBC, and we were like, holy moly, because the whole set was pumpkins and monsters. Stan the Man Johnson was dressed, the host was dressed like an alien. He had alien ears, an alien nose, a cape, and he was just kind of goofing on it. And Stan just sat there, and he, he was dead serious but tongue-in-cheek dead serious. You, somewhere I posted that, I think. I, we still have the VHS of it. And he would, I can imagine, I can't imagine any other UFO researcher, serious one, agreeing to do that. Like a lot of them would have walked out and said, oh, I'm not going to do this, bar. And Stan just went, you know what? I'm on the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. I'm one of the most popular shows on the weekend. And who cares what the host is dressed like? It's fun. And I'm going to go talk about UFOs and show some photos and all that sort of stuff. So we thought he'd be really angry when he got back to the house. Nope. He thought it went great. He just went, yeah, that was awesome. That was great. So that was who Stan was, too. And he, he would never get too wrapped up in the seriousness of it all. Took the work seriously, didn't take himself seriously. I think that's a fair thing to say. Yeah, just an amazing sense of humor, too. Just an amazing Yes. We laughed so much. I, I like I said, we started the show tonight. Like I went through, was trying to dig out some old clips and stuff, and uh, just I kind of ended up just sort of like waxing nostalgic and listening to these shows. It was just like at every, it, we just laughed all the time. It was like I don't think I laughed as much with any guest uh, as I did Stan. Uh, he had just this great sense of humor, and like you said, he didn't, he didn't take. He was a serious man, but he didn't take things like too seriously, like you said. You know, it's really. Uh, I think that's part of his enduring popularity in a way. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and you know, you know what? Even in the end, what I really liked about Stan, when it would have been so easy, for instance, for him to go to uh, Mexico City for the Roswell slides thing or whatever. Yeah. He yeah. was he was still smart enough and sharp enough uh, to not take the money to to stand, walk away and say, "No, this is nuts. I'm not going." Because he didn't, he was comfortable with his place in the world and in ufology. And he didn't crave that constant attention. He got it, but it didn't define him. And then you can look at the people who did go to Mexico City, who clearly should have known better. Stan told me, he said, I can't believe they went. And they're the kind who have to, you know, they have to chase it. Whereas with Stan, it just came to him. And, you know, I, I always found that interesting. He didn't have to, he would, he'd chase it when he was younger. But by that, by that time, he had sort of grown into it. And he just knew how to get people to pay attention to him without having to do stupid things or, 
sell his sell his beliefs or his soul. He really did believe in MJ-12. I think mm-hmm. he was wrong, but he really believed it. He honestly, truly believed it. He really believed in Roswell. I think he was wrong, but he truly believed it. And you see so many of these other people that I think are just doing it for the money or the fame or the attention. And that was never Stan. And as a result, I think people respected that and gravitated towards him, certainly for many years, until maybe, you know, the the UFO world spun out of – he created something, and then it spun out of his control. It became something – in the end, I'm not sure Stan recognized what ufology was anymore. Uh, It was something that had passed him by. And not in a way, I don't want to speak for Stan, but I did talk to him about it, not in a way that he was always happy with, especially some of the darker conspiracy strains that have arisen um, over the years. That was not a a rabbit hole he ever wanted to go down. For instance, he would often say, I'm sure you've both heard him say it, a lot of this stuff should stay secret. We just want to know that you have it, but we don't want the U.S. government. I remember him and Stephen Bassett getting into a huge argument once at the next conference. Um, and not over money, oddly enough, because usually that's what you'd argue with Bassett about um, and not being paid. But the argument was Bassett was said they had to they have to release everything. Stan, why do you keep telling people that, you know, they don't. And Stan said, I don't want the Chinese knowing. I don't want the Russians knowing. I don't want these other people having the secrets. Stan believed they had the secrets. But Stan was also like, you should keep those secrets. We just want to know, you know, but we don't want the technical specs. So he, he was in a very interesting place that in the last 10 or 15 years was not where the zeitgeist of ufology was, I think. And uh, I think that disturbed him uh, to some degree. And I do believe, having talked to him once or twice about it, that in his own way, he struggled with his own role in creating that and you know, how far yeah. maybe it had gone. Yeah, I, re- I remember once, uh, Paul, you, uh, you described um, – the, uh, the disclosure movement as as sort of the, the, the bastard offspring of Don Quixote and Stan Friedman and yep. in in a lot of ways I mean that's that's the definition I, I I give you credit of course but I keep I keep returning to it because you, you've got this this sort of this government cover up the government knows the government has the secrets and then the next logical step is they should tell us these secrets and then I think what the, the leap Stan never made as you pointed out and just to, to sort of to sort of unpack that a little bit, the leap that Stan never made was to this idea that knowing the secrets will create some kind of utopia. That if right. we just know about yeah. the UFOs, all of our problems will be solved. Which is, you know, the the sort of you, you sort of like sketch out the line of where the disclosure crowd, you know, is is, is going, and, and that's you know that's what they want to do. You know, we can solve every problem we have. The closest Stan ever got to that was his. Um, his sort of his sort of you know his sort of finishing move in his uh, in his presentation the whole uh, who who speaks for planet Earth uh, thing that, that this idea that that you know there there has to be some sort of um, some sort of you know under global understanding or unity in our uh, in our future and I know that uh, for example that that's one that's probably the one thing that that put him on uh, Bill Cooper's radar negative radar the most um, because you know. Dan Friedman is a shill for the New World Order, sort of thing, and and, and all that. But um, you know, well, he was. Never, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, he in, was in, in exactly. the most he, he, in, in the most benign, reasonable way. Yeah, yeah yes, he was yeah. a globalist in the exactly. Sense of the yeah, he really word. was. 
Well, it's funny. One of his one of, like, sort of keep referencing sort of like the catchphrases and the and the famous sayings. But yeah, one of them was something about like how we're just like a backwoods species on a little planet obsessed with tribal warfare. That was sort of his big thing. Where it's like how they. I, I remember you always used to mention how so much money is spent on the military and and they could feed all the they could feed all the people who are hungry. They could house all the people who don't have homes with the money they spend on the military. Like he always pointed that out. He was a a humanist and, and sort of a globalist, uh, you know, who's who's like I think he kind of saw to what you guys are saying. It's like he, like Aaron said, he never made that that pivot, and I, I think that's why I always sort of respected him so much in a way because we aligned in, in thinking in that sense. He seemed like his perspective was like we can still figure this out, like we we can figure this out without without giving up. And in my mind, like the disclosure thing is kind of like, all right, we give up. We can't figure it out. So tell us, you know, tell us what you know. Like Stan sort of had the idea, well, the government probably knows and they should tell us something, but he wasn't like banging on the doors of Congress about it, uh, which was refreshing because like, like we've observed, that seemed to be where a lot of this went over the last like 15 years. He was sort of still of the mindset. It's like, we can, we can, <laughs> we can figure this out. Here's, here's the information. What we need is, you know, more exposure of, of this mystery, essentially, seemed to be what his argument was in a lot of ways. Well, there's, and Aaron and I have talked about this, there's a very dark strain within ufology that has just gotten more malignant over the years. And you can see it by looking at some, I won't mention any names, but some well-known ufologists' Facebook pages, for instance, or whatever. Uh, I know where you're going. <laughs> you, you, see the, you see the rampant nationalism, you see, which is antithetical to what Stan would talk about, and really, honestly, antithetical to thinking of alien life in general. Because, frankly, an alien from Zeta Reticuli isn't going to give a rat's behind whether you're an American or a Peruvian, to borrow Stan's phrase, or whatever. They'll see us as Earthlings. Right. And the, you know, Stan was all about, like, I don't care if you're black, white, gay, straight, male, female, Peruvian, American. I don't care about any of that. There's space aliens. I mean, come on, folks. There's space aliens. We just need to stop fighting amongst ourselves and see us all as human beings. And that is right. not where a lot of ufology, you know, the, ufology today has more in common with Bill Cooper than Stan Friedman, sadly. Oh, Bill Cooper, Bill Cooper won. Bill, Bill Cooper yes. won. Actually, no, the, the, you know, Bill Cooper won, but it's like a dumbed down Bill Cooper world yeah. uh, in, in some yeah. way. It, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it, 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 and think about that for a second. But you know, it, it's very, very, very much so. It stands very sort of like late '60s, early '70s. You know, progressive style just is not where things are. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's very interesting. In sense. Go ahead, Paul. In his own weird way, he had a lot in common with the contactees. You um, took the word right out of my of mouth. Real... That's exactly what I was just going to say. <laughs> Sorry crazy. about that. Yeah. No, it's perfectly – I, <laughs> yeah, I was, it was literally like the words that were going to come out of my mouth. So he sounds a lot like the uh, – his his sort of worldview sounded a lot like the contactees. It's interesting. Uh, I wonder if that's just sort of a product of that error or what. I I think it's, I, I think it's sort of a product of that error, and – you know, you know, if you look at if you look at Stan's age and Stan's generation and, and Stan's background, he's you know, he's the 
I, 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 dare I say it, the, the, the you know, Hubert Humphrey, George McGovern sort of generation, right? I mean, I might be a little off, mm-hmm. but, you know, there, there's this, there's this, you know, sort of, sort of post-war, he had that post-war optimism. And I, I think that's one of the things also that's, that's missing from America. And <laughs> how is that, I mean, the, the, the sort of, you know, the, the sense that, that things are, that I can't remember which politician said it, and it's probably good that I don't, but there, there's nothing wrong with America that can't be fixed with what's right with America. And, and there's nothing wrong about the world that can't be fixed by what's good about humanity. You know, and that idea has sort of, uh, has sort of faded, whereas now we know, just, just give us the ray guns, you know, we'll be fine. But, um, yeah, yeah, Stan, uh, Stan was, 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 it's not just Stan that's gone, it's that, that generation is gone, sort of from public life more generally. Yeah, yeah he was, I mean, look at him. He, was, he came from an immigrant family, like first generation. His parents were immigrants from, I believe, Lithuania, it might have been Latvia, one of the L Baltic countries, um, yeah. which had a history of anti-Semitism and mm-hmm. um, all sorts of nasty stuff even before the Nazis got to it. So they come and to I think America. His mother was from Ukraine, I think. He, so yes. like, he had some Ukrainian in his background, too. Yeah, yeah I think that's true, Which, yeah. But they were, they were definitely immigrants. They came here. Um, so if you look at the current zeitgeist in the U.S., anti-immigrant, and not just the U.S., frankly, it happens in Canada, the U.K., we're seeing it across the globe. It is everything that Stan's generation was against, most of Stan's generation. So he grew, he was old enough to remember the Second World War, you know, the sort of apotheosis of the evil of nationalism and how fascism and just humanity putting too much, too many borders up can lead to tens of millions of deaths. He was, like most of his generation, he was traumatized and changed by that. And so they wanted a better world. And a lot of this, Aaron, you talk about this a lot when you talk about the contactees. But Stan, also from a more scientific perspective, the whole generation that wanted to go explore space, you know, see what's out there, were driven by a desire, I think, to kind of put the past behind them, not wallow in yesterday, but let's embrace a new and better future because we've seen what the past represents and, and nothing good. And that, now we see everybody returning to the past. We, you want to go back to the good old days when things were safer and more comfortable for you, but maybe not for all these other people. And Stan, <laughs> right. Stan, was, never that, Stan was never that guy. He was always forward, 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 and space aliens. I mean, that's, that was his message. How can you d- think of dividing the human race when you're talking about other beings being out there? And that's the... Of all the things I liked about Stan, except for his love for baseball, that was the thing I liked the most. He was a humanist, um, and he was a globalist, and he believed that there was a better future for all of us together. And whatever other disagreements I had with him about the particulars of space aliens, that was a message that resonated with me. Um, Because I studied the same era he grew up in, so I'm well familiar with the horrors of the past, too. And like him, I like to look forward, and I wish more people were like Stan. Yes. Yes, I agree. Yeah, absolutely. That would be that'd be wonderful. Um, maybe someday we'll uh, the, the global Goodbye temperature will change. People. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I would. It's interesting. I, I want, I, yeah. Go ahead, Aaron. 
I'm, I was just going to say, as far as, you know, you know, we should all be more like Stan. The whole place should be more, the whole planet should be more like Stan. Um, <laughs> one, one specific way, um, one specific thing I always respected about Stan, um, the, the time, the, the one time I met him and, and every sort of media appearance I ever saw him in is he was, like you said, he was a go-getter. He was aggressive. He was out there. He was, he was always, he was always hustling. He was always working but he never came across like a grifter. And oh no. And to, to to be able to to be that to be able to be a professional ufologist for most of your adult life but still but still exude a kind of sort of hardworking integrity is I don't even know how, how somebody would pull that off besides other than having actual integrity, right? So, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I I always Sort of, you can't fake it. You can't fake that kind of sort of sort of effort. And you might not have agreed with him, but he wasn't he wasn't trying to rip anybody off. He, he wasn't he wasn't out scamming anybody. He wasn't, you know, selling bucketfuls of Roswell dirt that may or may not contain part of an old radiator that might be alien. You know, he wasn't <laughs> doing any of the he wasn't doing any of the shady stuff that makes ufology look worse than it is. He made ufology look as good as it possibly could to the non-ufological world. Yeah, that's That's a great way of putting it, yeah. 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 The the great thing about it is ask yourself how many ufologists, whether it's Nick Pope or Rich Dolan or or Nick Redfern even, publicized their phone number. Because for years and years and years, you could call Stan Friedman up at home on his hotline, because I think they had two lines. Because uh, I can't imagine my aunt Marilyn ever would have let. Yeah, they must have had two numbers. <laughs> but Stan, Stan published his phone number, and he would tell massive audiences, "Call me. You got a tip? You got a lead? You got anything? You want to talk? Call me." And people did. I was would stay in his house, and he'd get the. He'd be, you'd be chatting. I remember once my uh, wife, who was then my fiance, and I were staying there for a day or two, and we were chatting in the living room, and suddenly the phone rang. And Stan knew which phone it was. He said, oh, I'll be right back, which we spent the next 40 minutes talking to my aunt, which was lovely. I love my aunt. But Stan was not right back. It was, you know, somebody with a U. And it, he walked in. I said, uh, UFO thing? He said, yeah, some tip. I wrote it down. I'll look it up later. <laughs> you know, but he talked to this guy for 40 minutes. Chris Stiles and Don Ledger will tell the story of how they that. just called yeah. Stan mm. out of the blue with the Shag Harbor thing basically to ask his advice. Like, how do we pursue this? And they were, A, surprised that he got back to them or picked up his phone, and B, that he took an interest and you know, really said, here's how I can help you. Here's what you can do. Maybe I can put you in touch, I think, with Whitley Strieber or this publishing company or blah, blah, blah. And they were always very grateful for that. I, there probably are other UFO researchers that do things like that. I just don't know them. And um, that's something else, too, about Stan. For anyone who thinks that Stan was, you know, greedy or, you know, just in it for himself. Nope. He would help anybody um, who yeah. would call him up. He, he always gave them their time and was willing. To, he would, I saw him at conferences. He would be listening to people I thought were literally, is this a PG rated show, Tim? As you can say, no, 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 it's been all of America. Come on. Cool. People who I thought were <laughs> batshit insane, like should probably be locked up. And Stan would stand there and listen to them tell their stories and nod politely. And, you know, at the end, he might say, well, if you read my book, um, maybe you'll get a better understanding of science. 
but he he would I think there's one lady in the in in the film you can sort of see her she's motioning with her hands and st- I remember that lady because she was in the sort of oh geez this lady's a little out there and I talked to Stan afterwards it's not on camera but I have it um, audio recording somewhere and Stan said yeah she was out there but you know what she seemed like she had a good heart and she wanted to chat and I'm, I'll chat with anyone you just don't know and that's another yeah. thing I love, love about it. Stan too yeah. Yeah, a couple of points there. He definitely, I, it's funny. We talk, Aaron. You know, we talked about all the the fingerprints on ufology. It's like I remember us sitting and talking to Chris Stiles up in Nova Scotia, and he told us the story that Paul just recounted. And it's like, there's another one where you kind of like, you know, Stan's fingerprints are all over this field, man, in ways that that we, you know, we sometimes may not even remember or or know about. You know, I think he kind of he, he was he was obviously Chris Stiles. Uh, and who's his co-host? Don Ledger. Don Ledger, yeah, yeah. Uh, obviously, they they you know they deserve the credit for putting Shag Harbor on the map. Obviously, but it's like they they turned to Stan and he he sort of guided them along the way and how to do it. So you know it's amazing, amazing stuff. Uh, I lost my train of thought there. So we're <laughs> did you want to jump in with anything, Aaron? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's horrible, but I didn't, I didn't have anything. No. <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. Um, yeah, let me see. Uh, now I'm distracted for a moment. Paul, talk about something so I can. <laughs> well, I, fine. I'll fill in. I'll just say that I think Don and Chris um, would be the first people to tell you that Shag Harbor might not be a thing without Stan. Um and yes, they deserve the majority of the credit. They did the research. They wrote the book. Chris is still digging away at it. But you know what? If you don't get that help, it's it's like a young musician or a young filmmaker. If you don't get that producer or record guy or whatever who kind of believes in you and helps you out, then maybe you're just you never heard. The Beatles, if they don't have George Martin and Brian Epstein, maybe they're just another band that nobody remembers from Liverpool, another skiffle group. Um, but yeah. without so they found those guys. And Stan was often that guy for other researchers. And so Shag definitely benefited from that. But Stan would give a lot. He would go out of his way to talk about, say, the Yukon case from 1996 and mention Martin Jasek, um, who was the primary researcher there. Um, whatever you think of these cases, by the way, whether you believe them or not, doesn't matter. Stan would, if he saw merit in it, he'd help you out. He'd push it. Uh, Bob Salas yeah, yeah. in the Malmstrom a- Missile Base case. Um, the Frank, Betty and Barney Frank Fraschino. He used to boost Frank Fraschino yeah. a lot. Yeah, the Flatwood Monsters. Stan was, towards the end of his career, became semi-notorious as being the guy who never wrote a book but always wrote the foreword. So Stan would, you know, <laughs> would write the foreword to an awful lot of books for people, and that was his way of lending his credibility, his imprimatur. And he wasn't, to the best of my knowledge, I don't think anyone paid him for those things. He was just happy to do it if he believed in the story you were telling. And so he bought into the Flatwoods monster case, whether you believe it or not. And he was very helpful to Frank Fischino, um and obviously to the Hills and Kathleen Martin. None of us would know who Kathleen Martin is. I'm not, I don't mean to offend Kathleen, but she hitched her star to Stan and Stan helped her. And now she's sort of a UFO celebrity in her own right. And she's earned it. Right. Fair enough. But you know, Stan was always willing to help people along whoever those people were, as long as they had a good story and as long as they seemed to be serious. Yeah, yeah. Now, the, 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 
the train pulled back into the station. Yeah, I was I was remembering how people because I interviewed Stan so often <laughs> because I interviewed Stan so often I would actually get this is true I would get messages from other podcasters who would be like hey how can, can you put me in touch with Stan Friedman do you know how to get a hold of Stan Friedman and I'm like and I would just just kind of like roll my eyes and just copy the URL to his pay, to his website that had his phone number on there and I'm like dude his phone number is right here <laughs> just just call him um and that was always the weirdest. I remember when I first called him, it was like, holy shit, he just picked <laughs> Stan Freeman. Stan Freeman just answered the phone. I'm on the phone with Stan Freeman. This is unbelievable. Um, and it was cool because towards the end when we were scheduling these shows, it was that was like this weird like holiday rite of passage for me. Uh, you know, like the, the week after Thanksgiving or something, it would be like I would call Stan set up, you know, you want to do it again? I mean, we always, you know, he loved doing this show. We really, we had an absolute blast. I think he loved doing the show. I can't, I can't speak for him, but he always wanted to do it. And, uh, you know, and kind of like what Paul was saying about going out of his way. Like, dude, I dragged him out here every year for this show, and he was always willing to be bombarded with questions from people who listen to the show. I really look back on that I would like to someday compile this into something just because the sheer variety of questions that people had for him was sort of like a glimpse of being at at the table at one of these events because the people people always had these really arcane specific questions or like really deep like spiritual questions it was like whoa, whoa, whoa what are you doing dude so it was uh it was pretty remarkable and I can only imagine his patience, kind of like what you were saying before, Paul, about about these, you know encountering people with these stories. I used to always have to say when people submitted questions, like, "I don't want to hear. Don't send us like four pages of your UFO sighting." And the question is, "What do you think it was?" And I think like he he probably had to endure that. I've heard him on shows where they had callers, and that's always that always is what happens. Some people just want to talk about their sighting so badly, um, and I'm sure he got bombarded with that all the time. So, and with with patience and grace, he handled it too. That's the amazing part. Yeah, another case um, which reminds me of a nice bit from a film was the Aztec case. Now, I totally blame Stan for resurrecting the Aztec Dracula um, because nobody ever would have heard of Scott Ramsey without Stan. So, Stan was not always right. However, there's a nice uh, scene. I'm pretty sure it's in the film I did on Aztec because he hooked me up with Ramsey. And I said, sure, I'll do it. I'm going out to. Aztec, I can film two films for the price of one, fine, Um, because Stan recommended him. And I had never heard of Aztec, so once I started looking into it as the film was finishing, (laughs) I went, oh, well, I still got to finish the film, though. um, But there's this thing. I went to the Aztec UFO conference, love Aztec, nice town, great people. And so there's Carl Flock and John Greenwald when he was just a whippersnapper. And, uh, you know, I think Nick Pope was – no, Redfern was there, right. And you get to Stan, and there's this thing. Stan – it looks like he's talking to the guys from ZZ Top. There's these two guys sitting at the table. I'm pretty sure this two. They have these long beards. They look like hillbillies, you know, whatever. And he stands folding this piece of paper. And people would be like, well, what the heck is Stan talking to ZZ Top about? And what Stan was doing was he was explaining uh, wormhole space travel to these two ZZ Top hillbilly guys. 
because they were going, oh, travel faster than light and all that sort of stuff. said, well, yeah, maybe. No, you can't travel faster than light. But here's how you can bend space and time by creating a wormhole or whatever the heck he was talking about. And he would take this, <laughs> these, this piece of paper and move the two corners together. He said, look, if you travel along the flat surface of the paper, if I just hold it flat, that's a long distance, right? But what if I bring the two corners together? Then it, there's no distance at all. And the two ZZ Top guys were like, whoa, you could do that? And Stan said, well, I can't. But, you know, we're working on it, and theoretically <laughs> it's possible. So, and the fun thing for me is the fi- I just shot a feature film, and I have a character that plays basically God. And she's trying to explain to one of the lead characters, uh, who may or may not be dead, doesn't matter. But she's trying to explain how time works. And I literally have her pick up a piece of paper and, and say, here's a flat piece of paper, and then she folds the two corners together. Here's how you perceive time and space, but here's what time, what if you could bend it this way? And that is a direct callback to that thing I saw 14, 15 years ago of Stan explaining to ZZ Top how to bend time and space. And I stuck it in the film because it resonated with me. It makes sense. It's the kind of thing I imagine God would say to we dumb humans as he tries to explain how it all works. The nonlinear concept is time and space. So Stan was very much, but that he he shared that with Carl Sagan, his famously, as Stan would tell you, his old classmate at the University of Chicago. Both of them were great popularizers. I think Sagan was better at it in the mainstream, um, and obviously people took Sagan more seriously. But they shared a couple of things. One, humanism. They were both globalists. They were both humanists, as we discussed. And two, they were really good at getting people to understand really far out concepts. I won't say by dumbing it down, by by making it simple for them to understand the basics. Michio Kaku is the guy that does that now. Um, and yeah. Stan was very much yeah. in that tradition of a scientist who could popularize uh, science and make it understandable to ZZ Top or whoever those two guys were. So if you want to go look up Aztec 90, 1948, which you can find on the net for free, you'll see that little scene, and that's what he's doing. But he did that every conference he went to. He would talk to people and make it understandable for them, which was great. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to go watch Aztec 1948 again, which I had never planned to. Uh, just just <laughs> to keep an eye out for that scene because that sounds that sounds great. Just yeah, I, I've there. never. I've never planned to watch it again either. The only parts I really like are that and uh, when I'm out in the old uh, air base at El Vado, which was actually really cool. It was an old radar base and uh, up in the mountains in northern New Mexico. That was actually really cool. So I, I can't argue with that. Uh, one of the, the of interesting sort of aspects about Stan, Stan's work, I guess you could say, his legacy uh, that we haven't talked about, sort of I've noticed – in thinking about him, and I, I noticed this back when we used to talk a lot too. I think I kind of gave him, kind of—I wouldn't say gave him grief, but I think I kind of was like, "Geez, dude, you're you're intense. You don't let these guys up off the mat, man." Uh, because he was like the consummate thorn in the side of the nasty, noisy negativists, right? That's what he—that's what he called them. Like he—he he had a—he—he he was just a master at sort of not only finding these these people who. <laughs> the debunkers, and having sort of a reasoned response to their arguments. And it's like, I think we lost a critical voice in ufology in that regard, because nowadays there's sort of more of like this childish 
response to, to anyone who's skeptical of all this where it's like fake news or, or you know, they, they, no one can make an argument necessarily. No one can make a reasoned argument even though there is one to make. Uh, Stan was Stan was like the master of that and also just, just you know, he had that famous feud with Phil Class. Uh, we all heard the story where he bet him $1,000 and, and he, he produced 10 documents and sent them uh, – Sent them to Phil Class, and Phil Class sent him the check, and then he blurred out Phil Class's the the check tracking number, and and uh, held it up at presentations and pissed off Class again. So it was like that was that's an interesting. Uh, that's one of my favorite stories. I've ha- having listened to a lot of shows in the last couple of days. I've heard I've heard that story several times just uh, just since like Sunday. <laughs> so it was it's a it's an all time classic. Um, uh, but, it's but important that, that, to note he he cashed the check. He blurred out a photocopy version, but Stan was always very clear. He said, "Oh, I cashed the check." You know? Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that was that yeah. was sort of that. That's what. Go ahead, Aaron. But yeah, that's the cool. That's one of the cool aspects, I guess. I was thinking as I was thinking about tonight's show. It's like, you know, and, and I'm going to hand it over to you in a minute. But you see these shows. Like, I hope to God he doesn't show up on Blue Book at some point, but you see, like, a show like Blue Book, it's like the, the life the, the the life and legacy of Stan Freeman is crying out for a Blue Book-type show, you know, maybe 10, 15, 20 years down the line, like, uh, you know, when they when – they, when maybe 10 years down the line, you know, as time goes by. But he just had such a colorful life and interesting interactions with all these people and stuff like that. And, and again, to I'm going to hand it over to you now, but that sort of, like, Tom and Jerry – relationship between him and the nasty noisy negativist was uh was awesome it was just something to behold it was a real it was a, it was a big part of his life and his career yeah uh if only there was somebody like we knew who worked in television or film production who might you know be involved with some kind of you know fictionalized exciting fun exploration of stan's life but i don't know anybody like that anyway what i was going to uh <laughs> What I was what I was gonna say is is that um, I I agree that there's there there really isn't anybody like as far as I can see anybody like Stan out there now that is engaging with the skeptical community and and partially that's the fault of the skeptical community becoming you know incredibly entrenched as well. Um, I mean, right. It's gotten to the point where you're, you're not gonna you're not gonna get somebody from whatever psychop is did they really rename they renamed themselves CSI when after CSI became popular didn't they um, you're not going to get anybody from psychop to have an honest debate you're, you're just you're just not um, and and you know they're going to spew their talking points and then whichever UFO person will spew their talking points and you don't have a kind of dialogue between the UFO side and the skeptic side instead what we have are you know, increasingly over the last 20, 30 years, it, it increasingly sort of sort of fractured, um, fractured UFO scene. That is, you know, you're, you're more likely to get a debate between two ap- people representing two aspects of the secret space program or something than you are to yeah, get yeah. like a debate or a discussion between, you know, a, a pro and anti UFO or even pro and anti ETH person. And I, I think that's partially the people who are on the scene now, just honestly, they probably don't see any money in it. But also, th- 
the whole the whole UFO scene itself has changed. I don't think anybody who's a UFO person necessarily wants or needs to see a debate with a skeptic or that kind of uh, sort of sort of contempt uh, c- uh, contentious but grudgingly respectful relationship because they're right. They're we're right and they're wrong, right? So what? Why even right, talk right. to them? There's no point in talking to them. They're 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 wrong, and they're not only wrong. They're they're mendaciously wrong. They're aggressively yeah. wrong. They're they're dangerously wrong, and they're trying to destroy us. Um, yeah. it, it's, Haven't these you know, people seen the TikTok that. video? <laughs> how how could you possibly have any skepticism left in your body after seeing the Tic Tac video, man? Exactly. That Tic Tac, yeah, that just deciding that if Stan could make a, a reasoned, thoughtful argument for the reality of UFOs, the contemporary response is, uh, "Haven't you seen the Tic Tac video?" That's it. Case closed. It's like there's no, there's no dialogue anymore. Yeah, and there's, yeah. No, there's no sort of yeah. yeah. Go ahead, Paul. No, I was just going to say, Aaron makes a great point. You know, watching American politics, let's, I won't pick on the Republicans now, I'll pick on the Democrats. Um, Stan was kind of like an Amy Klobuchar or a Mike Bennett or a Steve Bullock, you know, that centrist. And nobody yeah. wants to hear from the centrists. And the Republican Party yeah. is riven with this sort of stuff. Everybody wants mm-hmm. to hear from the people on the furthest fringes. And Stan, in his own weird way, was kind of a centrist. Um, he could get along with Bill Class. Like he didn't think Phil Class was the Antichrist. He just thought Phil Class could be very mean spirited. But they they actually had a, I won't say a friendship, but they had a a relationship that could be friendly when they wanted to be. They didn't hate each other. It wasn't like you must die. You're you're the the Antichrist, as I said. Stan didn't hate Kevin Randall, even though they disagreed vehemently about many things. He spoke very highly about Carl Flock, even though they disagreed. Uh, I saw these people, never class and Stan, but I would see them at UFO conferences, like I saw Flock and, and Stan in particular at one. And these are two guys who absolutely did not agree about Roswell. And they were extremely chummy. Flock was sitting there wearing a CIA hat, and Stan, <laughs> who you know, spent a fair portion of his career bashing the CIA, you know, would, was wearing his UFO tie, and they were just having a great old time. And Stan, like that, that idea that you could get along with people without, like you could never imagine Stephen Greer or, even, or Stephen Bassett having that kind of conversation with somebody on the other side. It just would not happen because to them, yeah. the other side is the enemy. Whereas to Stan, uh, they were just people who had a different point of view with which he disagreed, but he could disagree politely and then go have a beer or have a chat, you know. Um, he was not yeah. a Christian. He was he was from a Jewish heritage, but he could sit down and talk with Barry Downing, the author of the Bible and Flying Saucers. Uh, I filmed one of their conversations. They went on for about an hour talking about the Bible and Stan with his, well, Sodom and Gomorrah could have been space aliens. That sounds like a laser. And Barry going, could have been. I think I might have written about that. Yeah. And they would, here's a, a Jew and a Christian talking about um, the Bible and potential space alien influences on the Bible. And that, you know, even though they would disagree about many other things uh, from their different perspectives, they always found, Stan would always find common ground with just about everyone, even class, uh, in the end. I, I, I have trouble, now I, I know, hmm, 
The weird thing is, you know who Stan had the most trouble with? And I, I, I won't name names, but I talked to him enough to know he had far more patience with skeptics as people. Because at least he would go, look, they're just wrong, but they're not bad people. It was ufologists <laughs> often that he <laughs> yeah. would have a real problem with. And um, I remember, uh, oh, okay, I'll name one. I remember um, when I first met Rich Dolan, I interviewed him for that uh, during that Aztec thing. And I thought, hey, he's a historian, seems like a nice guy, blah, blah, blah. And then I went and talked to Stan at his house. And Stan never said anything bad about Dolan personally. But Stan pulled out his copy of UFOs in the National Security State. And he said, Dolan doesn't know what he's talking about. And then he opened the book. He had literally, he had 200 yellow sticky notes in there with notes written on them going <laughs> wrong, didn't happen, guy never said this. The whole Jim McDonald bit where McDonald might have been brainwashed by whatever Dolan said to kill himself. Yeah. Stan had that whole thing yellow lined, the entire chapter, nothing but yellow. Because <laughs> as he said to me, he said, I started yellow lining the stuff that <laughs> was wrong. And then I just forget I was yellow lining it as I was reading it. And eventually the entire thing was, was, was highlighted with yellow. And so there's, the, there's a book that a lot of people said, and, and Stan would always get up and he'd do conferences with Dolan and they'd get along just fine. But Stan made no bones about it. He thought that book was terrible, that it was not an accurate reflection of what UFO history, what of the history of even ufology really was. And I do know he was offended because he knew McDonald. Stan worshipped McDonald. If you yeah, want to look I was going to say, like, Stan, yeah, I was just going to say, in conversations, I always told Stan I thought he was the greatest of all time, the GOAT. And he, yep. for folks wondering, if you hadn't heard the old shows, he always, always, fuck, uh, always put over James E. McDonald. He, he, he said he was the best. So he was an enormous yeah. man. It would be like going up to Tom Brady and saying, you're the greatest of all time, and having Tom Brady go, you know what? Warren Moon was actually the greatest of all time. Never won a Super <laughs> yeah, Bowl. Yeah, nobody, yeah. Maybe nobody remembers him, but he got five, you know, Grey Cups and Canada. Yeah, Stan always said James McDonald was the greatest UFO researcher of all time. Not Hynek, not Valet, not Stan, McDonald. Right. And he meant it. So when he read this, and he knew McDonald, and he knew McDonald had committed suicide. And so when he read that Dolan had written this wildly speculative sort of stuff, basically saying McDonald didn't kill himself, somebody else's brain zapped him into killing himself or whatever, you know, yeah. wink, wink, the CIA has ways of making you do things. Stan was yeah, it was like a targeted individual that, is the theory or some shit like that. Yes, and that he said, look, we all, like everyone who knew McDonald knew that this is a guy that absolutely would have killed himself because he had a lot of problems. And case sera, sera, terrible tragedy. So, you know, Stan would reserve some of his biggest uh, bites or his, his uh, sharpest barbs for people within the UFO field that he thought had gone too far. Um, and in that sense, he was, you know, one of the original debunkers because as he would say, and he said it to me more than once, if it's bunk, call it bunk. You know, there's nothing wrong with being yeah. in a bunker. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, he got I a lot so. of grief for the last few years for the Lazar stuff, but it was like, Again, I hold him in the highest regard in that realm too. It's like any it's it's almost like you, it's it's the nature of the UFO beast in a sense for people like anything that can even be remotely beneficial to this crazy phenomenon being reality. Uh people in UFO world just jump on and embrace. And it's like it's like Stan was the proverbial turn the punch bowl on the Bob Lazar story. <laughs> Uh, and and he he really I think if Stan hadn't gotten involved, I don't it, it may have taken a much longer time for anyone to even realize 
there are serious problems with this dude's story, which is amazing when you consider Stan's the, Stan was the face of UFOs. You know, you won't, one yeah. would think, the skeptics would say, you know, this guy, it, it, would, it makes all the sense in the world that he would just jump on this story and, and, and promote it to high heaven. But, you know, it didn't hold up, and he was the first to say this doesn't hold up, which, which I have so much respect for him for doing. Because Stan had integrity, like I said, you know, he, you know, it, it doesn't do, it doesn't do your your long term interests any good to back something that you suspect is going to get disproven eventually. So, you know, Stan was was not only you know had integrity with regard to the the work he did to you know demonstrate that Bob Lazar you know lied about a lot of stuff, um, but you know he was also a very he was, he was very canny about just like just like the Mexico uh, Mexico City thing with the Roswell slide. He was very canny about, if I can sound like a marketing person, his brand. He's not going right. to attach himself to anything that is not going to be good for Stanton Friedman, UFO physicist and lecturer. Um, and and the Roswell slides weren't anything good to get involved with. And at the, you know in a similar way, I, I think you know some. Sense, you know, he was like, I this Lazar thing, you know, I, everybody's jumping on board, but I don't know. So he, he looks into it, and um, you know, he, he turns out he was he was correct, despite what, despite the last two years of people seemingly forgetting that all of that happened back in the eighties and nineties. Right, right. There's a movement afoot to yeah. rewrite the narrative, and it's like. Now, yeah. no matter what you say, folks, uh, you know, Stan showed that this dude did not go to MIT, and he said he went to MIT. So you can say I don't care about where he went to school. I only care about the UFO story. But if you're doing that, you're, you know, you're, you're just – you're fooling yourself. That's my opinion. You know, you're fooling yourself into, into believing something that you should be much more cautious about just based on what we know. Well, Thanks to Stan, you can, and I can, literally say without fear of contradiction in a court of law, Bob Lazar is a liar. Like, you can, there's absolutely right. no question about that, unless you believe, and this won't hold up in a court of law, the goofy theory that they somehow wiped his entire record from MIT. And Stan found other flaws in the Lazar story. He was merciless with the Billy Meyer hoax, for instance, yep. and was one of the first mainstream UFO researchers who immediately said, I looked at it. I, I read the materials. I did my due diligence. Hoax. Absolute fraud. No questions asked. And he never deviated from that. But when somebody like crazy Michael Horn would show up and say, well, Stan's never looked at the materials. Yeah, no, he did. He, he just he saw them for what they were, a hoax. And having said all that, Stan still, like all of us, he had one massive blind spot, and that was Majestic 12. Um, yeah, I was going to ask did, about that. Uh, just in the sense that I just, go, go ahead, Paul. I was just going to say it did irreparable harm to his his sort of brand and his reputation. Um, not not total destroying, damaging kind of harm, but it's the yeah, it put a dent in his armor. And even with his friends, people like Brad Sparks and others, because ufologist after ufologist after ufologist, serious UFO researchers, one by one, turned away from MJ12 until in the right. end. Stan was the only one left, and that that hurt his standing within ufology 
Um, for what, and I don't think Stan cared because I think he really did believe in Majestic 12. But, um, but yeah, that was his one blind spot. We all have him. And that was the one he couldn't get past. And I know I tried to knock him off it. Others did. Brad Sparks, his old friend, would tell me, you know, I, every time I talk to Stan, I try and make him see. You know, this is a this is a hoax. Your your buddies Bill Moore and Jamie Shandere did this, Stan, and Stan, you just couldn't get him off it. It was his one blind spot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you kind of answered sort of the question. That was what I was going to bring up. But it's very interesting. It, it 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 is it is this sort of weird. Like anytime you, t- you the subject of Stan comes up, people always preface it with like, I didn't agree with everything he said, but. And it feels like they're always what they really mean is like they're referencing the MJ12 part, and it's it's really interesting to me that I didn't kind of realize it till more in recent years as I noticed that like kind of what you said, Paul. Stan was the only one still on board this. I don't know anyone who believes in the MJ12 documents who's uh, a UFO researcher, which is pretty remarkable. And it's like I think. I didn't really kind of come to that realization Stole, until Stolen, like maybe. this. Oh, what's that? Maybe Rich Stolen. He's sort of how ironic. Tries to have it both <laughs> ways. Well, yeah, no, I know, but he still tries to have it both ways. But I think Dolan has start to come out, um, and if he doesn't adopt the documents as real, he would say something like, "Well, even if the documents are fake, what they say is true." Which, right. Right. You know, it's kind yeah. of weird. Yeah. That yeah, I think that's I think that's kind of where a lot of people fall in a sense where they're like it was they wanted to tell us about this thing but they yeah, that's kind of like they try to have their cake and eat it to uh response. Mm-hmm. And it, it, like I said, I didn't really kind of that didn't like dawn on me till this past summer and if we had done a 15th holiday special with Stan, I think I probably would have brought that up, but I I mean I I wouldn't have thought about it if he hadn't died, so it's you know, I doubt it, but uh, it was interesting in a sense to me. It was like that's you kind of hit the nail on the head. Where that was sort of the asterisk uh, that that people, you know, it, it sort of tripped a lot of people up. Where to me, it's like I just based. I mean, I haven't looked deeply enough into it. Just based on what everybody says, I guess it's bullshit. Uh, the MJ12 stuff, but I <laughs> I have a feeling like if you talk to Stan, he would he would sell you on the story so well that you'd come out of it kind of like. Oh well, maybe maybe everyone's wrong. I don't know. So, like you said, Paul, he really believed it. Uh, it's just a very interesting sort of weird paradox in a sense because uh, he really was the last one left, sort of really championing this idea. Remember the four basic rules for debunkers. They haven't changed any. Uh, don't bother me with the facts. My mind's made up. But the public doesn't know. I'm not going to tell them if you can't attack the data. Attack the people. It's easier. Nobody will know the difference. And do your research by proclamation. Investigation's too much trouble. Nobody will know the difference about that either. It's the Banal of America Audio Holiday Special featuring Stanton Friedman. Happy Holidays! Aaron, you're you're our resident UFO historian, so enlighten me yeah. to, I guess, it. what we know re- about these MJ-12 thing now. For the for the people like me who are who are like, I don't really know enough to to know what to know. So, uh, you know, what, what what where are all these people who say it's fake sort of getting this consensus from? 
Well, I, I think, I mean, my perspective on it, without getting into, without turning this into the, the MJ-12 show, um, which, God, right, nobody right. wants, but um, my <laughs> perspective on this, just from my perspective, what disqualifies the MJ-12 thing from being real isn't so much that, oh, we've, we've you know, looked at the typewriter and, and, you know, it's not the right typewriter or whatever. It's, it's just the fact that there's, there's just not a convincing amount of corroborating evidence outside of the context of the people talking about the MJ-12 documents, if that makes sense. They're sort of hermetically sealed in this, in this sort of unverifiable bubble. And you can sort of look with it, you can sort of see tangential connections to things, but, you know, archives is archives, man. And, and there's, there's ways that things are cataloged and even super secret stuff. There are, are ways that it could be, corroborated that I just don't think it has been. And for me, the, the big thing is the, uh, the Donald Menzel name being included, you know, as one of the members of MJ 12. I mean, it's, that's a gag, you know, it, it's, you know, he was, you know, the full class of the, of the fifties and sixties or whatever, but that, that it, it's a gag. It's a joke. Um, for me, I mean, another thing for me, the biggest thing is, I mean, God, Bill Moore was involved. If that isn't one of the most disqualifying aspects of it, oh, a guy who, you know, took money and, and, you know, was in a position to disinform people in the UFO community on behalf of the intelligence community. Oh, but, but you know, he's got these documents now. Oh, we believe, we believe him on this, but he did some shady stuff otherwise. But, you know, I trust yeah. him on this. Just, just for me that, I mean, the, the lack of, of sort of external provenance and, um, and, and and Bill Moore's involvement. I mean, it just it just screams hoax, operation, disinformation, a lot of stuff. Yeah, and it came out of that era where we know all that was going on too. So it's like, yeah, it makes, yeah. If you want to watch the ultimate, the ultimate argument about do you believe in magic or do you believe in magic? Sorry, Majestic Twelve. <laughs> watch my film available for free online somewhere. Uh, do you believe in magic? Because there's Stan on one side. And there's Carl Flock and Kevin Randall on the other. And basically, it's kind of a – one of Canada's major papers, the National Post, national papers, called it when, I, when it was released. It said it's like a UFO um, gladiator pit because it's these three guys. <laughs> and it's pretty much them. I mean, I think Dolan's in the film and Rob Swiatek. There's a couple other people in bits and pieces. But it, the core is really Stan versus Flock and Randall. And it's the – sequel in a way to Stanton T. Freeman is real because the first film was about Stan's life and we referenced Roswell and we talked about it and we talked about Majestic 12 but then Do You Believe in Magic is the sequel that really goes down the rabbit hole of what I think undid Stan um, and sort of really sent him off for a very long time on the wrong path um, not the original path he was on and that will to believe kind of thing because he really did believe it. And then you have Flock and Randall, both of whom believed that aliens visited Earth, by the way. Um, and in Randall's case, believed there was a top secret committee. He called it the Unholy 13, just because I, I think Kevin could never let Stan have one up on him. So if Stan had Majestic 12, <laughs> Kevin had to have 12, the Unholy 13, yeah. Because um, they would, you know, Stan. Randall's a fun guy too, because Randall would he jokes. I think in one of those films he says 
I think I put this in the film. I'm not sure. But I do remember him telling me in an interview, he said, yeah, I excluded Stan from the index of one of my Roswell books just because I knew Stan would look in the index and see that I hadn't put his name in there. And that would get him angry. And he said, I did it as a joke because I knew it would rile him up. And, you know, it did. It riled Stan up because you could talk to him. He said, I can't believe Kevin didn't put me in the index. I found it. You know, I discovered Roswell. And so, you know, it was a love-hate relationship. But you could see them sit down and they'd have a steak dinner together and have a nice chat, too. Um, But, yeah, Majestic 12 was his blind spot. And the nice thing for me is I got to put all those films up for free. So um, this isn't me putting me over to make money. This is me just saying if you want Stan's story, it's largely contained in those two films. And he's in the Aztec film a bit. But uh, those, those cover his high points and his low points. And he had, he had some of both. More high yeah, the MJ-12 thing. It was odd. Go ahead. No, no, I was just saying he had more high points than low points. Even his even Yeah, his absolutely. Attack, yeah, yeah. Nobody, Flock, Randall, none of them, would ever deny Stan's overwhelming, like we sort of started this conversation, would never deny that Stan was the – you know, the, the Mount Rushmore centerpiece of modern ufology, like in the last 40 years or 50 years. There he is. Yeah, yeah, you'd, probably yeah. put, you'd probably put Hynek there. You'd put, I don't know, maybe you'd put Valet in the corner, I guess, although most of the public doesn't know him. Um, if you looked in UFO history, here's a good question. I think we've done this before, Tim, and maybe you and I have, Aaron. Like if you had a Mount Rushmore, how many presidents are on Mount Rushmore? Four or five? Four. Five? Four. 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 Well, there'll be five. There'll be five in about four years. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. And it'll, yeah, it'll, and they finish building the giant, wall. There'll be this giant <laughs> orange one. Um, so, who are the four guys that should be on UFOlogy's all-time Mount Rushmore? For me, it's Stan, Kehoe, um, Heineck, and then the fourth one that you know I could have an argument one way or another about, depending on who you, what aspect you wanted to cover. But Kehoe, Heineck, and Friedman. Those are three easy first ballot Hall of Famers kind of thing. And the fourth one, I think that's more of a subjective call, like who do you think it might be sort of thing. I might put Valet on there just to give a nod to that end of ufology, but he would be the sort of lesser fourth member. Those other three to me are are tectonic giants of, of UFO research. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that. I can't even – I would actually probably agree – with all four, in, 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 a sense, in a sense, this will really piss people off. But in a sense, uh, Valet is just kind of holding the spot because right. you know, waiting for whoever the next, you know, whoever the one is that may, you know, God willing, break this thing open or uh, or have some kind of uh, colossal impact on the field. Like uh, someone else will come along that, that will be able to fill that spot, I hope. Uh, and I hope it's not Tom DeLong. But that would be that would be a very odd Mount Rushmore. It's gonna be Big Lou, man. Big Lou. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I might if you don't care whether they're right or wrong or whether it's true or not, I would probably put George Adamski on before yep. ballet. I'd say yep. somebody and Adamski's the obvious choice, should represent the contactees, whatever you think of them. Um that was a massive movement within uh UFO subculture, but Aaron, you can talk about this a bit. Uh, I think, uh, just American culture, a sig- not yeah. insignificant cultural moment. And to not put a contactee there, assuming you don't care about what these people said, I think Adamski would probably be a pretty good – actually, he's my fourth choice. There you go. 
My counter to that would be, and I'm not necessarily a huge fan myself. Uh, Not that I dislike him, but I just I'm not really uh, I'm not an aficionado like I am with Stan. But uh, maybe Streber, I guess, uh, if you're if we're talking sort of like that realm of person, uh, if you well, if if you want, basically a contact. Streber is basically a contactee these days, so let's just put Adam right. up there, and we'll have the contactees covered. Um, I would put uh, I would put Kehoe, Friedman, Adamski, and John Keel. That that's my ah, you go. Mount Rushmore. Wow, John Keel just bumped Alan Hynek off. Crazy that's man. Right. fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> we already got one scientist. We we don't need no government spook scientist on our Mount Rushmore of ufology. We don't need any apologists, <laughs> yeah. ufologists. Yeah. You know, yeah, one thing yeah, is, that was... my, my, you know, that, that line, I, I have, that's always bugs me because that's not what the word apologist means. Um, he means apologetic ufologist, and, 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 but, but it doesn't matter. Oh, rhyme. yeah, he so does. Apolog, apologist ufologist is, no, an, an apologist is somebody who defends something. You know, like like uh, you know the, the whole like like field of apologetics in in religious studies. It's like uh, that that all oh, my my sort of dictionary brain always. It's like I get the <laughs> rhyming part, but that's not the word. Oh oh, hold on. I'm a I'm a TV ghost hunter. I'm in communi- I'm communicating with the spirit of Stanton T. Friedman now, and no. oh, he's no. not saying anything. But I can see Ghost Stan rolling his eyes and going, this is why Aaron Gullius is not speaking at colleges across the United States. <laughs> People knew what he was talking about. <laughs> An apologetic ufologist doesn't rhyme. That doesn't work. That's, that's just... Uh, I, 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 I never like thought McCartney. of that. It's like Paul McCartney's that's father the... saying, you know, she loves you, yeah, 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 it's a good song, but it should be she loves you, yes, yes, yes. Right, Dad, I'll take that under <laughs> advisement. I'm not going to argue about this. Um, <laughs> the fun thing is, we all agreed. We all agreed that Stan and Keo are two guys that are common on all of our lists. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Stan, which is which is weird because Keo, man, Keo is just you know the worst. I, the the, the guy's <laughs> just oh man. I. Mm, mm, I but Stan no, was the direct descendant of Keo. And unlike yep. Stan's descendants, Greer and Bassett and those guys, Stan took what Keo was selling and he added a veneer of scientific respectability and research to it. And right. what yep. Greer and Bassett and these guys have done is, weirdly enough, they've stripped all that away and they've kept the core of what Keo was talking about, which was the conspiracy stuff. And so mm-hmm. Stan was this wonderful kind of like interwar period, you know, Weimar Germany. Where, where there was this wonderful flowering of reason and culture, and then suddenly it disappears, and you're left with ugh, something even worse than what came before the Weimar period. Actually, wow, I like that one. Um, that is, yeah, Stan is the Weimar Germany of ufology. Yeah, it does actually kind of work. Man, I, I, oh, too much cabaret, but um, <laughs> you can never have too much cabaret. That's uh, it, that, if you're in the mood for it, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think that I think that I think that's true. That that sort of like Stan added to what Kehoe did, and then and then the sort of the Greer Bassett crowd sort of, you know, it's like no, we, that's boring. Let, let's let's talk about yep. you know how we can shine flashlights up and how I'm a how I'm a, a, a lobbyist for the flying saucers and stuff. 
But um, and, and you know, it was all sizzle, no steak. Yeah, yeah. he was kind of like the through line through a lot of this, and then it sort of burst out into like if you imagine almost like a tree growing out of the ground. It was sort of like this straight line, and then it turned into this the the mess that we see today, where it's all split off into yeah. a bunch of little fringe aspects of UFO world, where it's like, oh, we're disclosure activists, and we just care about Rendlesham. It's like, what? Why? <laughs> Why, why do you just care about Rendlesham? Uh, but they're out there. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's interesting. It's really interesting. I was going to mention the apologist ufologist, not what, I, not the very prescient point that Aaron made that I never considered in my life uh, that that it was actually radically incorrect. I've got real but. problems. Okay, I've, I've got some real psychological problems with things like that. <laughs> so it, it, Stan is Stan is right rhetorically. I'm right. You know, for real. But, you know, Stan, from a public speaking <laughs> point of view, I will give that to Stan. Well, it, it, to circle back in a sense to the sort of, like I was saying before, this Tom and Jerry relationship between him and the skeptics, it's interesting. And comparing it to where we're at today, it's like we talked to like, oh, UFO world it has changed. It's like the, uh, the skeptics aren't what they used to be either anymore. You know? No. It's like they're really – there isn't anyone who's sort of like the – the, the the prime target of, of our ire, if you will, except maybe like Neil deGrasse Tyson, but it, it, to him, the UFO thing is some some minor thing that he get asked that he gets asked about once in a while. You know what I mean? It's like he's not making yeah. his bones on going on these shows and stuff like that, and uh, and so it's 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 like there's nobody really who's even a prominent voice too much against this. And as I was saying before, not only we, we, we lost a real uh, sharp-minded advocate for the reality of this phenomenon in Stan, and perhaps even more troubling in a way is that there's really nobody in the field, and I may be mistaken, if, if, uh, well, I guess if, if I'm missing someone, I guess my point is made because I don't know who they are, but it's like Stan <laughs> was the only – Stan had the, the scientific credentials that put him a notch above UFO buff. So he was the nuclear physicist flying saucer guy. And and that got him in the door and got him the kind of respect that, quite frankly, I don't see anybody in UFO world getting nowadays, aside from uh, Lou Elizondo. Because he we worked for the government, and he was part of all that whole. That's a whole other kettle of fish we don't even want to dive into, folks. But, but <laughs> as far as sort of having that, having that kind of credibility that the media will take you seriously, there's like Stan, and or there was Stan, and there's really nobody else that I can think of that that can even hold a candle to him as far as how people will actually take him seriously. Well, let me use some wrestling parlance for you. There is nobody in ufology today that can get themselves over with the crowd um, without the help of somebody like Tom DeLonge. Because Tom DeLonge's not a ufologist. He's a pop star. Stan could get himself over. He didn't need yes. anybody else's help. Right, yeah. Absolutely. So he, he's the Hulk Hogan. No, that's a terrible comparison. He's, I don't know who would he be as if he's a pro. You know who Stan would be as a pro wrestler? He's kind of the Bret Hart, you know, really good, no. and really solid, but mm. not 
And actually, you know what? He's Bret Hart. If Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels had a love child, because Stan had both of those guys, he's he's got a yeah. bit of both. I don't, I don't know who that, he'd be that, as he's a that, pro wrestler. That's called that the, the love child of Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels is Ric Flair. <laughs> yeah, I would. If you can find, uh, although I like to track. call myself the Ric Flair of the paranormal. Uh, I guess as far as like <laughs> career trajectory and. I would say that Stan would probably be like the Ric Flair. He's the one that people think is the greatest and also has this sort of uh, timeline where it was like there, there was a twilight of his career where he was still performing. You know, he was still doing doing stuff all the way to the end, essentially. Uh, you know, Ric Flair, yeah, I assume. But, but as bad yeah, as Hogan me, is, I was just going to say, yeah. Hogan, Flair never took wrestling into the superstratus of the mainstream. Where Hogan right, right. did. So in a sense, he's got some flair in him, but he's also got that Hogan, like he's the one who would get booked on Nightline or whatever. And yeah. Right, right. That, yeah. You know, that, that's, that's Stan there. I'm the Christian of uh, ufology. Oh, nice. <laughs> I don't even know nice. what that means. <laughs> that's, he's, a, he's a solid worker who everybody exactly. respects and everybody loves to work with, but you're not going to see anybody talking about him on the street. No, it's true. Yeah, yeah. sad but true. Yeah. The, the, the only sort of, uh, sort of Rick Flair comparison, the sort of Rick Flair comparison, I was, I was thinking is, you know, Flair having this reputation of of being able to to get a good match out of anybody, um, in a way that that few other wrestlers could, and I sort of see Stan mm-hmm. as being able to go into any venue, and 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 get over. He could go into into any. From college lecture hall to you know industry luncheon back in 1971 to the MUFON conference to you know the the Dateline NBC special on flying saucers he'd he'd go and he'd do his signature spots he'd do the upside down flipping the turnbuckle and and jumping off the top and getting caught and the figure four and all of that and no yeah. matter what crowd he was in front of he could make that work with no matter who he was in front of, who was interviewing him, what was happening. Yeah. 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 You know, or the, depends on the era, the rock, the John Cena, every era has one guys who can just get out and not everybody's going to like them, but they can, they yep. can hit their marks time after time, after time, after time and, uh, and break into the monoculture. Uh, yeah, that's Stan. Um, Plus, I love how this conversation has devolved into pro wrestling comparisons. <laughs> well, it's funny because when I was sort of talking evolved. earlier, I was. Did you say devolved? It, it, it's evolved, not devolved. Oh, it's, evolved. It's, 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 <laughs> a, it's ascended to the level of pro wrestling. Exactly. Everything is professional wrestling. Well, that's, that's it's right. kind of funny because I, I earlier sort of felt kind of bad in a sense uh, calling Stan a showman, but to me. There's a, that he really encompassed so many aspects. His, you know, he had so much going on that that was part of it. Uh, and I, I kind of like uh, made a big point of that when I, I did an event like in October uh, down in Nashville, and I was like, kind of explains like, you know, when I was promoting the events, like we, this is going to be a show. I hope because people, people are paying tickets to come see you. So, so there is. I always think there is sort of an interesting connection between wrestling and, and uh, the paranormal. And in a sense, you know, Stan was, he mastered the art really in a lot of ways, you know, and that's another thing yeah. I love about the movie, Paul, it, uh, Stan T. Freeman's real, the scenes, I think I wrote about this once, the scenes uh, 
when he's like checking into the hotel and like doing the 5 a.m. radio show or something. It's like that was just such a fascinating glimpse into his life. You know, he had he had like a like a rock star lifestyle. I remember he used to talk about how he did something like 25 lectures in 30 days or something crazy like that. Uh, I, I'll find it, you know, this weekend when I'm listening to the shows again, but it was something crazy like that. It's like, again, please, somebody, that's the TV show I want to see. Forget Blue Book. Well, you you might, the interesting thing is for me, you might find that a dull show because the point I was trying to make in the film, yes, he had a rock star. I was a musician. Right, right. No, I know that, star. yeah. I know what the lifestyle is like. If you take it seriously, like Stan would show up for rehearsal every day. Stan would learn the songs. He was meticulous about the performance. And so the best, the scenes I like most in that film, uh, the one where he's putting the slides in his projector. Mm-hmm. Other people at the conference would be hobnobbing with friends or saying, hey, where are we going to go to have a few drinks and, and meet girls tonight? Or God knows whatever. UFO conferences, folks. There's an awful lot of. Does that really that conversation really happen at a UFO conference? Yes, yes, it does more than you would ever want to know. Not Stan. That's gross. Stan would Stan would trundle up to his room. You'd see him walk through the hallways. He'd have those big um, suitcases full of books, and he was in his 60s. Like that was heavy lifting. Then he would show up on time, prepare in advance. He would put his slides in. He he said, I remember him telling me once. He said, you know what? Sometimes I, I will never let anyone at the conference do it because they might put them in the wrong order. I want them like people are coming here to see me speak and they want to see the slides and everything. He had it meticulously planned to the detail because he he knew that he was giving people a show and information. But to get the information over, the show had to work, too. And I always thought it's yeah. kind of like a Broadway musical as opposed to a high school musical. Like a lot of UFO speakers at these conferences were the high school musical. Yeah, they're just having fun. It's great. You know, Stan was the Broadway musical. Like the guy was a professional. He showed up and he took it seriously. And you got what you paid for with Stan, whatever you thought of it. Right. Whereas a lot of these speakers show up and they just wing it. I'm guilty of that myself. I just kind of show up and wing it. Stan was the anti-Paul. He had everything prepared to speak. And whether you like him or not, you had to respect, as Mosley did, you just had to respect the guy's professionalism as yeah. an entertainer, a showman, uh, a communicator of information, whatever you want to call it. He he got it, and he worked hard to do it. Yeah, I didn't necessarily mean to imply, imply he had like a rock star lifestyle in the sense that he was throwing TVs out no. windows and stuff like that. But he he was he was a he was a traveling you know he was he, that to me was like the fascinating part of it in a sense where it's like he he is checking into hotels like day after day. It's like the old thing the wrestlers say, and I've experienced it just doing the handful of conferences I've done where it's like, oh, this is cool. I'm going to Baltimore, and then it's like you never get outside the. You never get outside, outside the little lecture hall. You don't even you don't even see Baltimore. It doesn't make a difference. This could be down the street from you. Um, it's a it's an interesting, you know. And he and that was his life. That was like he was doing this time after time. It was really, really pretty amazing. Aaron, you're going to you jump in. I jumped might... over you, buddy. Okay. Oh, go ahead. Um, I I forgot what I was going to say. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. It's 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 week of the semester. I don't have a brain anyway. So, I'll tell you one other (laughs) thing in the film that I like, Um, and Aaron, you'll appreciate this as much as I do. Uh, 
women appreciate smart. The two young women that are interviewed at the sort of beginning of the Stanton Friedman film, the very attractive ones, one's uh-huh. blonde, one's a brunette. Yeah. We we just found them. They were just hanging out at the conference. And so my camera guy, John Rosberg, who was always happy to chat up uh, pretty young women, um, would uh, he went over to him and he said, oh, who are you guys here to see? Now remember, this Greer was at the height of his powers. And there were a lot of And they said, oh, we're here to see Stanton Friedman. Oh, I overheard it. I said, can we interview you? They were gaga for Stan. Like, not not in the way that I think people might think. But here's these 20-something young women who were really very attractive. And they were just, they thought he was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And all they could talk about was how smart he was. And they, once we turned the camera off, one of them, and I can't remember which one, said, yeah, no, he's so sexy. And I thought... Uncle Stan is sexy, not not something my wheelhouse of understanding, but it was just he exuded that aura of authority and intelligence and just, but also that open-minded G wizardness. He he was a weird dorky sex symbol, uh, in some senses too, which I know folks will find hard to believe, but it it's it's oddly true, and I saw it in action more than once at conferences. Where, well. Yeah, people would just fawn over him in, in, in different ways. I got a, a yeah, couple of stories I mean, in a yeah. sense. Oh, hold on, Aaron, because I'll forget these if I, <laughs> if, I <don't, laughs> if I don't get them out of my brain right now. Um, uh, we 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 kind of talked about like how how his, his star, I guess you could say, kind of dwindled in a sense as time went on and as we approached you know 2020. But to me, I noticed especially, and I think this was the case up in Canada, Paul too. Uh, like I did the Exeter event, I was the MC for the Exeter event about ten years ago now, um, and uh, so I saw the crowds for everybody's talk. And Stans was like uh, after lunch, about one in the afternoon, and that Exeter town hall was absolutely packed, like packed to the rafters, and it was. It, I was like, <laughs> I was, I was like amazed. And when I brought Stan up, he got a standing ovation, and, to me, and that to me was like, wow, this is really, this is really cool and awesome, and and you know, it's really, he deserves this. This is so awesome, that, and it, and I was just blown away by how big the crowd was. And I think about it now, it's like, when we were up in Canada, I would, from my memory, I would say the crowd definitely swelled for the stand thing at the at the end of that first night. That was the biggest the crowd was for any of our presentations or anything. Yeah, it's you know it was a small crowd all the way around, but I mean, yeah, I was smart. I was always smart enough to know if you had a conference, you book Stan as the keynote. So not Aaron, not me, not you, none of us, not Greg. Stan, Stan's going to be the yeah, guy he's the because he will. He, even if he's only drawing forty, that's twenty more than you and I were drawing. So Stan <laughs> would always be the biggest draw of any conference that he was at. Um, even the one I went to in two thousand one with Greer. Uh, Stan had a crowd in the auditorium as big as Greer's. It was just at the tables afterwards that everyone's going gaga over Greer. Um, if they could get past his security, which Stan never had. So. <laughs> and, and I do want to tell one other story because you reminded me of this when you were talking about the slides. Uh, I This is how much of a mark I was, for we'll use wrestling terms, uh, for Stan. Before I even started Been All of America, it's like a year before I interviewed him, and kicked off this whole program. Uh, I was at the first X conference and it was, 
it's maybe hard to believe, but it was a, it was kind of a ragtag operation. So essentially, it was like anybody who wanted to lend a hand could. So I ran Stan's slides for his presentation mm-hmm. at the X conference, like for the for the sole reason uh, that it was Stan Friedman. It, to me, it was like like I can be the roadie for Bob Dylan for one night. This is this is crazy. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Yes, I'll definitely run his slides. It's like please, for sure, you know. And and, and it was. It, yeah, I'm still, you know, I'm so proud that I did it. I'm so happy that I that I that that I was such a dope at the time that I was like, yes, absolutely, please. Where do I sit? What do I do? How do I run this? I run this slide projector. This is this is, you know, it's still to be a thrilling experience that I I had a little hand in in some show that he did. So it was it was pretty cool. Um, now, Aaron, what were you going to say, my friend? I was just going to say what what Paul was saying about the um, the, the women, you know, being like Stan is so he's so smart and sexy, and and we're, we're here to see Stan. I mean, what was great about Stan was if you watch some of the the clips of presentations in the uh, Stanton T. Friedman's real film, he's he's funny, and he's he's got the, the he's got the actual knowledge down. But he's funny and he's warm and he's engaging, and and he's. You know, as he, as he got older, of course, he was he was very very avunc. You know, he, he's super avuncular. You know, and and mm-hmm. grandpa like. And yeah. the thing is, compared to some of the other names that that you mentioned, Paul, Stan was whatever the opposite of creepy is. That's Stan. Yeah. Stan is somebody. Yeah. Stan is somebody that that I don't care how old he was or how young he was or at what stage of his career was, anybody would be comfortable going up to him. And asking a question at the hotel bar, and not yep. feel uncomfortable. I'm not saying anything about anybody else in particular, but you know, he's just that kind of guy. He's got just this warmth and this magnetism that um, that 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 age could not dim. Yeah, no. Like when I say that these these young women found Stan sexy. Um, if my aunt Marilyn is listening, uh, Stan was totally oblivious <laughs> to any of that. Like he. <laughs> Would not, you know, wouldn't have cared. I've I've been to UFO conferences where I've seen guys on the make and some women on the make too. I guess it, it can be a bit of a, anyway, especially in Vegas, people can draw that what they want. Which UFO conference I might have been at, but Stan, <laughs> nope, he he was he had nothing to do with any of that. He would rather go talk to Barry Downing about the Bible and flying saucers. That's what Stan Ooh, would what? do when his, yeah, well, no, me too, but. Um, <laughs> Or he'd sit down with Flock and he'd talk with Flock about who knows what. Um, he would talk baseball with people, whatever. He just wanted to sit and chat, and then he'd wander off yeah. to his room because he had books to sign and he had slides to arrange, and he knew the next day he was going to you know, have to go back and sit at that table. And um, you talked, Tim, about you doing his slide thing. I did that once or twice for him, too. The highlight of my UFO or paranormal speaking career, such as it is, was it? I think you were there, Tim. The um, the uh, East Coast Para Conference in Liverpool, Nova Scotia, that Stan spoke at. The first one. Yeah, Lauren, Lauren Coleman. Coleman. Was there too. Yeah, that was a great. There event. was a picture. I was speaking about ghosts in our show, Haunted, and there's a picture. Somebody. I didn't have a slide projector. I had the PowerPoint thing, but somebody had to use the PowerPoint clicker because we didn't have a clicker. You had to be at the computer, and there is Stan Friedman sitting in front of me, slightly <laughs> to the side, and. And he is my slide monkey. You know, he's the yeah. He's I remember the you said that during the presentation. Yeah. Yeah. 
and and that is the high point of my speaking career. And I just thought, how cool is this? I like there's he and he's like, look, I'll do it. Sure, why not? I'm happy to do it. And he and I both chatted about it afterwards. And I thought it was really sweet. And he kind of thought it was you know a nice moment to have his nephew. And and he said, but you're wrong about Majestic Twelve. And I was like, <laughs> okay, fine. That's I'm talking about Ghost Stan. I've moved on. But um, yeah, no, that's that's probably one of the highlights of my foray into the paranormal. Uh, that and being able to, when he did his Q&A in the Esotericon, I guess it was 2018, his hearing was largely gone. He was he was really kind of quite deaf. He had hearing aids. They didn't always work. And so somebody had to go up and translate the questions for him. And yeah. I went up and there I am standing next to Stan. And I kind of probably figured maybe this is the last time I'm going to get to if not see him, because um, he did visit Halifax just before he died, I think. And I didn't know he was in town. He visited my parents. I would have gone over to say hi. But the Esotericon was the last time I ever saw him in person. And I kind of had that feeling as I was standing there. This is actually pretty cool. You know, the last time Stan speaks in Halifax, I get to stand next to him and translate the questions for him. Um, it's not a handing of the baton because I am not a UFO guy, a speaker. But I, I just thought it was a nice family moment, especially – to some degree, I, I would have had a career anyway, but the first film I ever did, the first real film I ever did was the doc on Stan. And he, you know, he was all in. He helped me out. He said, whatever you need. Uh, we filmed at his house on 9-11, you know. And uh, when oh, he's wow. looking at the he, that scene when I talk, the, it switches and it gets dark and it's about now conspiracies and the camera's zooming in on him as he's watching TV and we're outside. That's 9-11 and he's watching CNN. And he wow, really, wow. when he, he's, he's not acting, he's looking like the world has just ended. And that's us going outside and saying, Stan, can we film you while you watch this coverage? And he said, yeah, sure. And that's what I used, you know, in the film. Um, but he, he could have just blown us off and said, look, guys, can we do this, uh, you know, next week or whatever? This is just a bad day. And he said, no, we're here to do a job. Let's do it. Let's get it done. Um, and, uh, yeah, everything changed that day, but he was still doing his job and we were still doing ours. And my career would have taken a, a markedly different path if Stan hadn't helped me out by saying, sure, I'll be the subject of the first film you ever direct. And then I'll do the next one, too. And he got something out of it, but I got more. So, you know, I, I'll never forget that. It's probably still the best documentary I ever did, frankly. First one I ever did, probably still the best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd agree with that, Paul. Nothing against your other stuff. <laughs> I, I love that one. I mean, it, 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 it's really I, yeah, good. <laughs> I, I do too, yeah. And like I said, I watched it again uh, rather recently, and uh, I think, Aaron, you kind of intimated the same thing. It's like I picked up something I had never even uh, yeah. known about Stan, even though I've interviewed him, I had interviewed him uh, tons of times. So. Uh, I'll let you guys get going in just a moment. Uh, you guys can chat for a little bit more? Ten minutes or something yeah. like that? Oh, yeah. All yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that was my only – well, it's funny because I have two ex- – I have an experience where it's like I'm kicking myself now where it's like, well, you had that opportunity, dummy. But to me, I really would have loved to have known Stan like in – sort of like in the roaring 80s when all this was, like, wild and, and a little bit more crazy and everything. And, I, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe it was his personality. Maybe that was the same 
maybe he was the same way back then. Maybe he retired to his to his room early, but but uh, I don't know that. And part of me wistfully sort of dreams of like, well, it'd be really cool, I guess, in a metaphorical sense, like hang out with Stan at the hotel bar. Like we didn't really get a chance to do that up in Canada because. You know, his career was winding down and everything, so he was pretty content just to go back to the hotel. So there's a, there's a part of me that kind of uh, that kind of wishes I had seen seen him in his heyday, if you will. I think that would have been pretty cool. And uh, the part where I, like, kicked myself is Paul was – well, it was a matter of circumstance, but Paul was kind enough to uh, hung, let me hang out with him pretty much uh, up in Halifax. And I did, I did sort of get that – like two hour car ride with Stan. I say, like I say, I kicked myself in a sense because I think up until last year when I last talked to him, I was always, I don't really call him a mentor or anything because I was just always in awe of the, of the guy. I was just in complete awe of, of, of what he accomplished and his, his star power. Essentially. He was just like this massive, I was always a fanboy up until the last day. Um, and and so I look back on that car ride, and I don't know if you remember Paul, or maybe it didn't even dawn on you or whatever. But I just sat in the I just sat in the back seat, like quiet as a church mouse, just like listening listening to Stan talk. It was like this is so cool. I'm <laughs> I'm riding in the car with Stan Friedman. This is like unbelievable. This is after I've interviewed him like seven eight times, hung out with him a few times. But I I always just had it had this like had this sense of awe about him. We were going down to Liverpool, right? We were coming back from Liverpool. Or sorry, yes, coming back from Liverpool. No, I, I remember that. I remember thinking, "Holy moly, I've never heard Tim Benall this quiet <laughs> <laughs> ever." I've seen Tim passed out in a bar. I've never heard him this quiet. Like even passed out, you're still talking. This is yeah, and I never really, I never really clocked why you were so quiet because it was really kind of just me and Stan talking. And I, I don't – wasn't there somebody else in the car? I can't remember. No, it was, was just there? me. And I would occasionally chime okay. in with some, like, one little comment. But, like, it was – I just listened. Yeah, it, it's weird to hear you say that because, to me, I I was never in awe of Stan ever because I just knew him as Stan. He did cool stuff. Right, right. But I, w- I would happily just – I'd chat up a storm with him. He was just my uncle who did cool stuff. Right. But I never – it's interesting to hear you describe that conversation or that car ride because I just remember it as one of many chats I had with Stan over my life in various different places. I mean, I spent two weeks with him in New Mexico filming once and then another week here and, you know, whatever. I, I chatted a lot with Stan over the years, phone calls, all this sort of stuff. And for you, though, sitting in the back seat, yeah, you were really quiet. I never thought of that. I just thought you were being polite. Well, yeah, no, it was more just like I, I guess, I, I guess in a sense I was being polite, but I was just like completely. <laughs> uh, it, it well, was, you, you, it, it was surreal. You saw Stan in a in a way different than how I saw him. We had different yeah, relationships yeah. with him. Yeah, I just kind of assumed your relationship. I just assumed everybody's relationship was the same with Stan as as mine, because Stan was just an open guy. If you really, as you say, if you called his phone number, he would he would chat with you. So he was an yeah. easy, he was an easygoing guy. Um, you know, you could put a, my final thing about Stan, I, I keep chatting about Stan until the cows come home if you want, but my final thing would be, look, if I had a list of 20 people, I, I love a lot of people. I love all my family. You know, um, I got a lot of friends, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
Stan would be in my top 20 list. My wife is there, you know, my brother and mother and sister and father are there. Stan would be in my top 20 list of people I just enjoyed chatting with in my life. I'm sorry he's gone. I have to admit I was shocked. I'm not surprised. I wasn't surprised because he was old, but I was shocked. And there, those are two different things when I heard right. he passed yeah. away. Um, yeah. And, uh, it, and the shock came from knowing that I could, there were times when I might go, even when we were doing UFO stuff, I might go a year or two without talking to him. Like, not out of hatred, just we just didn't chat. And then we'd yeah. chat for like eight times in a month kind of thing. And I just realized, yeah, I can never call him up again. I'll never see him yeah. in person again. I'll never chat with Stan Friedman again unless I see him as a ghost hunter, which I'm sure that'd be fun, actually. Um, <laughs> and it, and that was the shock. It wasn't surprising, but it was shocking. The finality. Uh, yeah. The only other person yeah. I can think of uh, that I felt that way was Mac. You know, when he passed away, I just realized I can never call Mac up. I'm never going to see him again. And there was that real sense. I've only pre- see, experienced. I've been lucky. Not a lot of people I know have died in my life. Um, but people that I really liked or loved, uh, it's an even shorter list. And when Stan passed away, uh, it was shocking. I, it took me like a while to sort of wrap my head around a universe that didn't have Stan Friedman in it, at least accessible to me via phone or fax or whatever. So yeah, that was, yeah, I miss him. And for people used to make fun of us. I remember Alfred Lemberg, for those that remember him, used to chide me and say, Oh, you're so disrespectful to your uncle because you disagree with him or whatever. And some people thought we didn't like each other. Truth is, I, I love Stan. I considered him a bit of a mentor, uh, even though we disagreed. I enjoyed his company. I think he enjoyed mine. Um, we helped each other. And uh, where we disagreed, um, sometimes pointedly in public, you know, it, it was never personal. It was always we were kind of putting on a show sometimes because uh, we knew it was good for business. But You're working yeah, the marks. I, I, Working the marks, exactly. There was an element of pro wrestling in there. Uh, but I really, really, really miss him. And I miss, even if I was, it's kind of like I once said to my wife, if you divorced me and whatever, and we never spoke to each other again, I would still not want to live in a world. This is the nicest thing I ever said to anyone. Still not want to live in a world uh, where you weren't in it. I would want you to be happy even if you never spoke to me again. And I feel that way about Stan. It's tough being in a world where I know Stan Friedman's not around, even though I recognize, given his age and everything, it was inevitable. But it, I still yeah. quite haven't wrapped my mind around it. This has been a very cathartic conversation because I haven't really sort of centered in on, yeah, Stan's not here anymore. And and that's that's very sad to me. Yeah, well, that was kind of, in a sense, kind of, yeah, I guess the point of this show in a way. I had the same reaction that you did. I was shocked, but not surprised. And then, as it dawned on me, more heartbroken. That that, that might be the best way to put it. Um, you know. So, and I'm I'm a big believer in this, and I hope that it's true, because the, when we lose people like this, you know, this guy dedicated his life to this thing. So I I hope I and 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 he was so inquisitive that I really hope that like. He's off somewhere getting these answers that if anyone deserves it, he did, you know? So I hope that, that I really hope that is the case because uh, that, that, you know, that makes me feel happy in a sense where it's like, okay, well, his time here is done. And now he's getting the payoff for all this hard work that he put in. He can, you know, go and sit out on the outskirts of the Roswell crash 
and watch as it unfolds <laughs> and see how it happened. And, you know, and, and his mind can be at ease, uh, you know, finally knowing the, the true story. You know, I really hope that is the case. Uh, Aaron, you're yeah, going to say something, buddy? I, oh, I, was, ahead, I was just going to say, I, I, you know, I only met him, I only met him the once, um, which I really, you know, re- I'm, I'm so glad I was able to meet him because he was, he was just such a, a, I remember Paul and I, Paul, you and I went to pick him up at the, uh, at the hotel uh, before the, the second, uh, the second day. Uh, you know, I was there to carry the bags uh, because he's an old man. And um, as, as, you know, at, at 43, I was the youngest one there. So, you know, I was, <laughs> that the, is true. The, I, I was, I was the muscle, um, but, but um, just, just such a, such a nice guy, and I remember thinking, I was thinking two things. One, I hope he's happy doing this. You know, at his age, I hope that I hope that this brings him joy. And and the other thing I was thinking was, I hope that I, when I'm his age, I'm still doing whatever brings me joy, like like this does. Um, and and the other thing I was I was just thinking is, I can't believe I didn't take a book for him to autograph. I. I <laughs> And I can't believe I was so cheap not to buy one for him to autograph while I was there. So yeah, I was going to um, say he was selling them at the. I yeah. know, I know, yeah. I know, I know. I was, I was, yeah, I, yeah. I well, he has a you know, copy. He, he has a copy of your book. Or he did. Oh really? Oh. Wow. I gave him a copy of the Chaos Conundrum. Yeah. Oh cool. I I I don't even want to imagine what he might have thought of that, but. Um, he he probably would have read it and said, "Oh well, interesting." Hmm. You know, something. Well, hopefully, well, Aaron, maybe maybe in like ten years we'll be able to go to the archive and <laughs> pull out the book <laughs> and find all the yellow find all the oh, yellow well, markings well, on it. <laughs> 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 Paul, do you know anything about uh, that? Was probably. If Stan dying was like the saddest story of the year for me, um, this story about this archive was like the coolest thing I've heard in such a long time. Do you know anything about this, uh, how Stan donated all his stuff to that archive in uh, Nova Scotia or New Brunswick? I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, it's at the University of New Brunswick, which um, is in Fredericton where he lived, although I think they have a campus in St. John, too. He had arranged that before he passed away. He didn't know he was going to die when he died. Right. right. But he had been work. He had been working on that. My understanding is for quite a while, sort of pecking away at it. Um, again, if you watch Stanton T. Freeman is real, that was really his basement. You. He used to joke it would be a grad student's term project to come and organize all of his stuff because he just <laughs> had papers everywhere. Um, so all of it. I think, you know, the story was if you want it, come take it after you passed away. If you don't, it's going in the trash bin kind of thing. Um, yeah. But they were already – they were well into – and the university, to their credit, um, took it. And how they how they will go about sorting through it all and, and eventually making it accessible, it will probably – I mean, eh, who knows, but I kind of know what his basement looked like. It might be the biggest collection of UFO material that will ever be donated to an archive. Um, I'm not sure, but it's going to be up there because he had a lot of stuff from, you know, yeah, his own heavily yellowed book to, to papers, to his own research papers. He had research papers from when he worked in nuclear physics in the 60s. I know I saw him. They had the red mark crossed out through the security classification, and now he had them. He had letters from 
you know, hundreds or thousands of letters from people that wrote him over the years. I mean, hand scribbled notes on post-its. I don't know what he had, but just tons and tons of stuff. So sorting through it is going to take a while. Yeah, it's funny. I saw the news the other day about the other Chris Rakowski. He donated all his – and I I don't want to throw shade at Chris Rakowski, and this may not be the case, but, of course, my first inclination when I saw the news was like, you stole that idea from Friedman. But apparently, yeah, the the other uh, the other university they they have Chris Rakowski's archive. So kudos to Canada for cataloging all this stuff. Well, and Chris's was, archives would yeah. be extensive because he's run the Canadian UFO survey for decades now. So that's yeah, a, yeah, that's actually a really pretty good, massive. So that's a great thing for Chris to do as well, just from research purposes. Absolutely, Aaron. Yeah, I was, I was just going to say, when uh, I was talking to a friend of mine, and she works in the sort of public history museum field, and she said there had just been a story about Stan's archives in one of the sort of sort of archive history library trade journals she uh, she subscribes to. So it's, it's not just big wow. UFO news. It's, it's sort of big archive news. So um, in, in sort of the public, oh, wow. sort of public history uh, world. So. It's it's great. Um, I uh, someday I have to live long enough for it to be cataloged and open to the public, um, which I should be, unless something happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, yeah, just I, saying, wow, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not that old. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they said it could take like you know ten years or more to sort through all the stuff. So we'll see. Uh, right. You know. I'll try well, to hang started, on. But- as Aaron would catalog know, it's a story, not yeah. just to sort it, but catalog it, just, you know, try and discern a, a story. Um, archives will often try and put things in a way that can tell a story, um, right. or at least, you know, what should be accessible, what shouldn't, what's important, what's not maybe important. Because ar- you know, archives are like museums. They don't have indefinite space. So right. at some point they might have to make yeah. the determination, these are important historical artifacts, or, and, and maybe this handwritten note to Paul Kimball is not. Or whatever. So <laughs> that's the one you should keep. People. Uh, what's that? <laughs> that's the one they should keep. Yeah, all the notes we wrote each other. Um, so my Tim, I can stay as long as you want. But my final thing uh, would be: here's what Stan's legacy is. Or this is my thought that just came to me. Stan's legacy has nothing to do with UFOs. Um, Stan's legacy, and what I think, it you know, if I was there. And his, his last second of life, I'm wondering what he would have been thinking about. I always wonder about this with people and love for his family and everything. But if he was thinking about his career, I think what he probably would have been most proud of is he made people happy. And he entertained them and he informed them. But he spread, you know, he was never going to be an Oppenheimer and Einstein. He wasn't that kind of scientist. He wasn't going to change the way we look at the world. But what he could do, and Sagan did this too, is – he could make people think for a moment, maybe two moments, imagine a better world, a different world, a stranger world even, um, and inspire them. The number of people that were inspired by Stan, not just to get into UFO research, um, but to go and study science or to read more or ask more questions about everything. That's, that is his ultimate legacy. And he spoke to thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people in his lifetime, yeah. just live in person, leaving aside his TV appearances and stuff, too. 
Uh, I, I think he was a, his, he's a great communicator. He's a great spreader of knowledge. Sometimes, you know, knowledge that you would disagree with, and maybe not true, um, but he thought it was true. He never lied, but he was, right. he, he always encouraged people to think. Um, and that, that is his ultimate legacy, I think. And that's a pretty good legacy to have, to be somebody who made people happy and to made, uh, entertain them and made them think. I, I think that that's like, if you're going to pass away, that's a fine marker to leave behind in a world where so many people leave behind bad markers. Right. And you can say in a sense, like he didn't change the world, but he did, man. Like you, you could, the, the word Roswell is forever synonymous with, with flying saucers. Whether you, you know, some people may very well raise their angry fist at that, at that, at that change, but he, you know, he left an indelible oh, no, he... mark on the zeitgeist that, let's face it, fellas, the three of us aren't, <laughs> you know, unless we, <laughs> unless we do something really bizarre or crazy, we're, we're, you know, we're not going to, like, shape human culture like he did. That, that, to me, is why I always looked at him in awe, where it was like, this dude changed, again, changed human culture. He changed the zeitgeist. You could walk down the street in any country in the world and say Roswell, and they know that you mean aliens for good or for bad like that that's that's unfathomable to me might be a tough maybe not in burundi but yes in most countries in the world yeah no no i didn't mean to say he didn't change the world he wouldn't have been in no the i know i know it wasn't yeah, he, had, yeah. he was never right, going to be right. a scientist who changed the world through scientific discoveries but he found a different way to change it uh and aaron you would probably appreciate this as i do a guy like david clark in the uk would appreciate it He's a he's almost a folk figure, more than a scientist yeah. or anthropologist. Oh, yeah. He's yeah. a figure of folklore now and and of, of cultural history, and uh, and a not insignificant one I would say in the 20th century and early 21st century of the United States. No, I I, oh. I agree I agree completely. I, I think that, um, and I don't I don't know I don't know how how Stan would have thought of, thought about this, but I, I think he's he's one of the he, well, he probably would, would would like this. He's a storyteller, and and like you said, mm-hmm. a, a folk figure, but also somebody who um, who shaped the lore in a way that is absolutely indelible. And and so from a from a storyline perspective, you you do get the story of Roswell. You don't well, you don't get the story of Roswell as we have it today without Stan's research and Stan's writing and Stan's retelling of that story over the years. You don't get MJ-12 does not have the longevity it has without, uh, without Stan Friedman. Um, and, and without Stan Friedman, you don't have I, – I, I really think you don't have the modern occupational ufologist um, or, or aspirational occupational ufologist. There's a lot of people <laughs> yeah. out there. There's a lot of people out there who want to be the next Stan Friedman. Um, and yeah. there, there are none of them who are – who are capable of actually pulling that off. Um, right. Know, it, it's sort of painful to watch, but um, not for me, for them. But it's, <laughs> it, it's one of these things where Stan was, 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 was singular. I mean, we can put him, we can say, well, you know, he was, he was like Kehoe or he, he sort of took over the college circuit from Mosley, but, but neither of them were like he was. Neither of them were as good at all of the things you highlighted, Paul, at, at communicating, at popularizing, at having a sort of deft touch 
um, translating these ideas and theories and data points to an audience of people on television or in an auditorium, whether it's at the MUFON conference or at a college assembly. Um, nobody had that before him, and, and nobody has had it since. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned a MUFON conference and a college assembly, because he's the only guy I can think of that could go to both and entertain both crowds. So he could walk into a MUFON conference and give them what they wanted. Then he could walk into a college like here in Nova Scotia or anywhere of, of people who weren't particularly interested in UFOs, but maybe moderately curious. He could give the exact same lecture, not change a word. And both of those audiences would be entertained. Um, that I think, yeah, yeah, that I can't think of anyone else in the history of ufology that could do that. I really can't. Well, well, I will say this. When I was in college, my college brought David Jacobs on campus, and I, if Stan Friedman had been there instead, none of my friends would have made fun of me for liking flying saucers like they did <laughs> after they saw David Jacobs talk. That's all. Yeah. But yeah, no, David he made Jacobs flying saucers cool. That was the funny part about it, too. Yeah. He made it cool. Yeah. And it was like... <clears throat> I think you mentioned earlier, Aaron, like his, he had that kind of like mad scientist look, but with, with the credentials to back it up where you were like, Oh, this right. guy's legit. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, oh, man. He, he, yeah. I mean, no knock on our friends, like a guy like Ryan Sprague, for instance, who he's got a television show now, I think, and he's all into UFOs and Ryan's a very nice young fella. And um, he's, he's, he's a lovely guy and he, he takes it all seriously. But Ryan has neither the scientific gravitas that Stan had or training. Um, and Ryan, while he's a savvy guy when it comes to the media, he's a filmmaker and playwright, he doesn't yet have the Stan Friedman sort of touch. I'm not sure he ever will, even though he's a, a good speaker. Micah Hanks is a, a, a really fun speaker to watch. I'm just going to do the S.A.R. He's a fantastic roster. speaker. Yeah, but he doesn't have the science background and that kind of thing that Stan always had. So individuals might have parts of what Stan had. Dolan is yeah, a bona fide yeah. historian. I wouldn't take it away from him. And actually, Rich isn't a bad speaker, all things considered. But uh, he just doesn't have it. Nobody has it. Stan had it. And I, yeah. I'm, Flock didn't have it. Flock had a, all the bona fides you'd want, CIA guy, former assistant deputy secretary of defense or whatever he was. I mean, Kevin Randall served in the military, blah, blah, blah. Kevin's not a particularly great speaker. He's okay. None of those guys had what Heineck didn't have it. Valet is dull as wood when you listen to him talk um, <laughs> in, at a conference. So, I mean, I honestly, Kehoe was dull. I mean, can you think of anyone else that had what he had, the combination? No, you hit the, the nail on the head in a sense. It's like the old wrestling yeah. thing where you argue about who's the greatest. It's like, well, who is, you know, well, you got to be good on the mic. You got to be good in the ring. You got to, you got to, you know, you got to fuck, you got to have like a, a decent body. You can't be a slob. And, you know, it's like all these different sort of like all these, you know, what's your drawing ability? How many people do you draw? It's like Stan hit, you know, Stan hit high marks in all of the, all of the things that make you great in, in UFO world, let's say. You know, yeah. he, yes. was, he was he, at the top, he might, the top of his class in all the different ones. And he he was never the best at any of them. So you could look at Heineck right. and say Heineck's scientific credentials were better than Stan's, I guess. Um, right. You could maybe look, I hate to say this, but Greer was as good, if not a better showman than Stan. 
Like Greer, whatever you think of him, put on a show. It's just all the rest of the stuff. So, but Stan was always in the top five. He was in the top five of everything. And when you put that package together, he's the the GOAT. So you would look at Tom Brady and say, you know, John Elway had a better arm. He did. You know, Brady doesn't have the best arm in the history of football. Uh, Maybe Joe Montana was better at fourth quarter comebacks. I don't know. But if you put it all together, Brady's in the top five or six of everything. And that's why I hate to admit it. He probably is the greatest of all time. Sometimes you just have to be almost the best at everything. And that's better than having that guy's the best at that one thing. But maybe he's right, not so exactly. good at some of those other things. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. And that, Stan was that guy. Yeah. Yep. Wow, we just Stan, made him the greatest of all yeah. time. <laughs> but, but he, I mean, he was. In, in this world, if we're talking about the idea of, of public ufology, um, mm-hmm. And, and all ufology is public ufology to, to a certain degree because there's no departments of ufology anywhere where people are toiling away yeah. in anonymity. Um, but but it, it's this sort of – The like, opposite like, of that, perform- <laughs> unfortunately. Per- perform- per- public, yeah, public performative ufology, nobody, be- no, nobody had what Stan had. Stan knew how to take everything he was good at and combine it in a way that, that absolutely minimized – his uh, that, that minimized the negatives. Um, you know, he 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 didn't have the scientific credentials of Heineck. He didn't pretend to. He didn't he didn't act like he did. He talked about what he knew. Um, mm-hmm. he, he wasn't the best. He wasn't the, the most outrageous showman, but he knew what worked and he honed what worked and he polished and polished and polished. And we talked yes. about his, his catchphrases. Those catchphrases. We're we're talking about his catchphrases, right? The man had catchphrases. None of us yeah. had catchphrases. Yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and he had countless, countless catchphrases, dude. Yes. <laughs> he had all these things that were just instantly identifiable as, as, as him. And and he put all of those things together and, and did the absolute best with what he had. And I don't I don't think the current landscape, um, you know, it, it's not just, you know, well, the, the people don't have it. Or, or this or that, but it, it's who, who's, I mean, who's got time to, to do all of the, the presentations that Stan did? I mean, the landscape yeah. is so different. We'll never see, we'll never see another Stan. No, the, the no. heyday of ufology is gone. And the yeah. giants from Dick Hall to Mosley to Stan to, I, I'm not a fan, but Bud Hopkins, you know, that generation are either all gone or the few that are still with us will be gone soon enough. And we will never see that kind of ufology again. Uh, right. with Whatever I think of Bud Hopkins, the man, like, within ufology, he was a, you would look at him and go, this guy's a giant, like, for yeah. ill in my mind. But yeah, these absolutely. were people of, of gravitas. Well, not gravitas. They were people that they were stars. Through. They were stars. There you go. And not just UFO stars, they were stars that could get on ABC News Nightline and CNN with Larry King. And I can't think of that ever happening again. Maybe Tom DeLonge for like a month. Right. And that, you know, well, yeah, moment will pass too. Yeah. But there, none of them, none of them like Stan. And, and guys like us, I don't want to put us down, we're fun guys and Greg and Bishop and Nick Redfern, you know, Nick's a tireless worker and everything. Um, none of us None of us are Stan. 
We're not though any of those no, guys. No, that no, is a no. that, that is a different generation no. that's that's probably not coming back uh, in terms of ufology. And um, yeah, we should tip our hats to them and say thanks, thanks for the memories, uh, guys. Yeah, and they were almost all guys too. Yeah, I know. Yeah. That's a that's a whole again. That's a whole other kettle of fish for a different program. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting stand, sort of represented in a sense. Uh, and I guess you could maybe make the case of uh, Rosemary and Gali, who passed away shortly thereafter. But the those two sort of are the the capstone of what has been a very, uh, for me, I guess, unsettling few years where uh, we've lost Jim Mars, Art Bell, Brad Stogger, Stan, and Rosemary Ellen Gali. And it's like, if you can't see this generational change happening before your very eyes, it's like, then you're not, then, as Aaron would like to say, then you're not paying attention. So, so yeah. it's uh, it's it's interesting. Yeah, the the, the passing of Stan, um, yeah, sort of is kind of like the tail end of what I see is this uh, this generational shift. And uh, one last thing, I guess, before we go, uh, not necessarily about Stan, but kind of in a sense, thinking about uh, you two guys because I knew I was going to be talking to you guys. And Paul, you may appreciate this. I was talking to Vaney the other day, and. I was, we were kind of laughing about how it seems like the paranormal community back in the day, like when I first met you, like 14, 15 years ago, and Aaron was, I think before you started uh, doing anything, producing any stuff, you were like commenting on yeah. blogs and stuff as FurCon, right? Because you were in my uh, yeah, forum so as FurCon. I was a frequent, I was a frequent blog commenter and a, a BOA forum member, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So doesn't it? I don't, I'm just asking. I guess this kind of goes, in a sense, to that idea of this generational shift. But like to me, I look back on those days when Aaron was commenting on stuff, and Paul had the other side of truth, and I was doing but all of America, and Vaney was doing his podcast. Uh, I think Culture of Contact. Like way back in the day, it just seems like like that world was so much smaller than it is now. Like, everybody knew each other. Like, all of us knew who each other, who we were and stuff. And now it's just exploded exponentially where everything is off in its own little fiefdoms. And, you know, there are shows that I don't even know about that have, you know, communities of like 100 people that love their show. And it's like, I've never heard of, you know, mystery, mystery, mystery. So, okay, I'll be happy to go on your show. And, wow, you have a lot of listeners. So it's just very weird as someone who kind of grew up in the nascent days of the paranormal online, how this has changed so much in the last few years and how everything, again, seems so much smaller back in the day. Everybody knew each other. Now it's like I, there are people I don't even know about out in this crazy world. Well, yeah, what do you think of that? Uh, I'm going to throw it to you for yeah. whoever wants to go first. Aaron, you go first. I've, I've monopolized too much of this. Yes, I'm um, terrible think, at directing traffic on these multi-guest shows. I apologize. Aaron, go ahead, buddy. I think, I think part of it is um, Twitter ruined everything uh, in, in a lot of ways. I think when, when social media was, you know, you know somebody had, had – there was Blogspot or there was a forum where it, was, where it was a place you went with a finite number of people who – you know, participated. It was easier to to know those things, and and blog posts would comment on other 
would like write articles and link to other blog posts. And he's had right, these little right. networks. And when sort of like broader social networking came along, everything got sort of, you know, dispersed and diffused. And then the, the sort of, you know, the ease with which you could pod with which podcasting became a thing there are more tools makes it easier for more people to do yeah. it. And every, you know, everybody, I, hell, I have a podcast, you know, so, you know, everybody, has, <laughs> yeah. it seems like everybody has a podcast and there seems to be, and, and this is what I would change more than anything. And I, I think this is sort of, you know, if we're talking about things that are very different from the, the, the Stan Friedman heyday, I mean, the number of people just out there who've never done anything, who call themselves UFO right. researchers is, is just, astounding and i i think there is even more so than than 10 years ago 15 years ago i think there's just a, a phenomenal amount of noise compared to signal um there are no i mean yeah. with the decline of print you, you don't have like publications actual publications to, to sort of circle around and sort of represent you know what the what 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 is the mainstream of ufology i have no idea if, if you right right on, yeah if you, if you were if, if you were to look on Facebook, you would assume that the mainstream of ufology is is Corey Good or David Wilcock or something because you know they seem to have as many people commenting as as somebody else. Um, so so you know my my sort of crusty Generation X take on it is you know the it, 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 it's all these damn millennials. Um, but <laughs> I'm, I'm yeah I'm kidding. Do not okay boomer me or cancel me. Um, I, uh, I I I just think that. The, the online landscape is such that everything is far more spread out and um, there, there's, there's fewer, there's fewer rallying points and the rallying points seem ever more extreme, whether it is the, the Corey good types or the, the hardcore, well, you know what it is? There's, there's rampant fanboyism in a way yeah. that I don't think there was um, at least 10, 15 years ago, we were in a sort of a dead spot. 10, 15 years ago. And so there was these sort of clusters of people sort of making their own thing. And now you've got these sort of big voices dominating the UFO sphere. And it's sort of, are you with them or against them? And instead of people creating new things, it's everybody just reacting to press releases. And and I I think that it's kind of discouraging. And and I've noticed that that a lot of people from those 10, 15, you know, the old guard, the, the older guard, um, a lot of us are just sort of hunkering down and talking to each other and just, you know, continuing to just do our own things. Yeah. We'll ride this out. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> seems that way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very weird thing. I think you kind of pointed out too, is there's this like evolution in a sense where everybody back, I think when we got into all this, or at least we kind of like connected online, uh, it was all the written word. Everybody was writing yeah. stuff. There were blog posts and comment sections and forums. And now it's like the medium has changed to super short garbage thoughts on Twitter <laughs> or, uh, or or excruciatingly long podcasts such as we're doing tonight um, or, or, or videos of someone talking to you through the yeah. screen, which is to me, uh-huh. yeah. Yeah, that's one that's one generational thing that needs to end. And I I, I got into an argument with uh, Steve Steve Ray, who I know you know, Paul. I, I chastised Steve Ray, and I I threw the gauntlet down. There needs to be a social change. 
that putting making someone watch a video from your phone onto their face should be like a social faux pas. Do you know mm-hmm. what I'm talking about, Aaron? Do you know I'll what do. I mean? Paul doesn't really yeah, delve into the world of cell phones, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, uh, watch this yeah. video. Watch this video. And they shove their phone in your face, and it's like oh, I know. you have no choice. You have no choice but to watch their video, and it's like that should not be that that should not be allowed. That that should be yeah. like that should be like shaking hands after sneezing. It should be completely shunned <laughs> by society. Yeah. Th- so for me. I agree with everything Aaron and said, and I agree with that, Tim, um, absolutely. But for me, it comes down to this. I'll add this as the cherry on top. There's no good feuds anymore. Oh, there's a lot of people arguing, and there's a lot of people who really hate each other. And I mean like a good feud, a class Friedman feud, where they could still have a, a beer afterwards. But, you know, they could yeah. battle as warriors, and, and it was almost larger than life, even in my own little no, no. world. Alfred Lemberg and I used to battle, you know, <laughs> online repeatedly, and uh, I would do it with other people, even Vaney, you know, not my favorite person, and he would say the same thing about me. But you know what? I kind of enjoyed our interactions sometimes because at least Vaney would write, or it would be longer than just um, Paul Kimball is hashtag a douchebag, and that was it. That was <laughs> yeah. their entire, re- yeah, you know, right, that's right, their right, entire yeah. rejoinder. No, back then Lemberg and other people would write. You could go on. You know what I miss? UFO updates, because UFO updates yeah, was yeah. a font of both information, but it was a font of feuding, too. And the feuding took the form, almost always, of people trying to argue while still saying you're an idiot. But here's one. Yeah. Here's the 20 reasons. And it was you, people who never experienced UFO updates, uh, you know, it's a time, it's never going to happen again. Now all you have on Facebook and all these different things, there's no centralized group where researchers and and, right, and right, members yeah. of whatever the community is can even hangers on fanboys can get together and in one place have it out and nope now it's just everywhere and if you want to tell somebody you hate them you go on somebody else's podcast and say so and so is you know a douchebag or whatever and i mean no say it to their face and then write a post and you know make the argument do that kind of stuff and don't make it personal yeah. And instead, what we've got is a lesser world with lesser people. And it's like cloning. It just keeps getting further from, you know, the core each generation. And I know I sound like a cranky old guy, right? But there's a reason I walked away (laughs) from ufology, because it wasn't fun anymore. I could feud with Alfred Lemberg, and people would think we hated each other. I never hated Alfred. I, I enjoyed it. Um, and I don't think he ever hated me. And eventually we came to a mutual understanding on some things, at least. But you could you could do those things as Stan did with class, and it didn't consume you. And that I just find that is missing now, um, where people can't disagree as gentlemen. I hate to use the word gentlemen, yeah. but, you know, you know what I mean. Gentle people, yeah. whatever you want to call it. Um, it there's, as Obi-Wan Kenobi would say, I long for a time with lightsabers, a more civilized weapon. Because all we have yep. now are blasters, and uh, yeah. I have no interest in the blaster universe, none. So, and Stan was yeah. part of the Jedi lightsaber universe. They all were. Dick Hall. Well, there you and go. They're almost all gone. Well, I... now. Like the Jedi, they're almost all gone. Yes, but we hold out hope for a good Baby Yoda. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I hate what... Baby Yoda. 
You, why do you hate Baby Yoda, dude? He's awesome. What's the name of the show, Tim? The Mandalorian? Yeah, the Mandalorian. With Baby, the Lord, Baby with Yoda. Baby Yoda? No, I don't want Baby Yoda. Give me, give me the Mandalorian. The best episode was episode six where Baby Yoda's almost not in it. That's Anyway, we'll descend into that. Yeah, I, I well, well uh, that's a good that's stuff a... <laughs> that makes somebody be a Jedi. Aren't Mandalorians what, like the little chemical? Aren't Mandalorians oh. like the chemical that that makes people like that the Force? Oh, no. Oh, no, yeah, it's not how it works. Okay, midichlorians. Okay, yeah, midichlorians. Oh, midichlorian. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know the Star Wars universe. Yeah. yeah. I'm gonna go. That's why I like Baby Yoda. I'm like I'm like I don't watch this stupid show, but I like that little puppet. He's cool. <laughs> Fair enough. That's pretty much that's, it. That's what most well. People, that's what most people say about Haunted. I don't like this show, <laughs> but I like that puppet, that Kimball puppet there. Well, part of the reason why I took us down sort of this path uh, of of uh, how things have changed in a sense and. Uh, and somehow it led us to Baby Yoda is I guess in a sense because I just couldn't talk about Stan anymore because I think we would just talk about him all night and I needed to find a, uh, I needed to get us on an off ramp. So, uh, you know, it's almost quarter to 12 here where I am. I've taken up two hours and 40 something minutes of you guys time. I really do appreciate it. Uh, we'll wrap up the holiday special here, the 15th and final edition of, uh, the holiday special. I thought about sort of doing something different next year and, bringing somebody else in, but to me, it's like, I don't have any idea. I have a year to figure it out. Um, this has been, as Paul said, uh, a cathartic conversation. Um, I've kind of, if I was any kind of real radio producer, I would have uh, already had all the clips and everything produced and ready to go, but to me, I couldn't even stand to listen to these shows Um until until we got real close to this tonight, and I'm actually kind of proud of myself. Now I'm going to like break my own streak here, but uh, I thought I was going to be like, crying like an old Irish drunk throughout the whole show. But <laughs> it turned out that uh, that this was kind of just what just what I needed, and and uh, you know it was, a, it was a fantastic conversation and a remembrance of Stan. And um, you know personally, uh, as Paul said. And I'm sure uh, I, can, I can echo this tremendously. I'm going to miss him so much. I thought we would be doing this tonight. I, I was listening to the old shows, and I got choked up because I'm hearing myself say, this is my favorite night of the year. I'm talking to Stan Freeman. And it was like, it's never it's not going to happen again. You know, it's like Paul said earlier. It's the reality sets in, and it's uh, – you know, it shakes you. Man, it's been a weird few years here for the program. I kind of intimated that uh, earlier with we lost Jim, we lost Stan. It's like I built this show on legends and celebrating these legends. And uh, to lose Stan uh, hurt a lot, but I'm so proud of the fact that we showcased him in a manner that really captured how important he was. Um, you know, 15 years, uh, 14, I guess, because tonight we celebrated him, but 14 years of, of, uh, of these interviews with Stan and, and, and 
capturing the essence of who he was because he was answering all these questions, uh, sometimes the most ridiculous questions I've ever read in my life, and sometimes the most thoughtful, uh, heartwarming questions and, and, and questions I never would have thought of. And he answered all of them and, he, and the, in a testament to how much of a professional he was uh, every year, no matter how many questions we had, I would set it up, we'd do 90 minutes, and he would hit that 90 minute on the fucking mark. And I always was like, wow, dude, this year we had 25 questions, and he got it right on the dot. This year we had 10 questions, and he got it right on the dot. I was like, this guy is, this guy is so good. He is so smooth. He is, you know, as we said earlier, he hit the high mark in all the different categories. He was really the greatest of all time. And... As I said earlier, I could go on all night talking about how fantastic and wonderful a human being Stan Freeman was, but uh, we'll we'll turn it over to the gang here. Paul, final thoughts uh, as we close out the holiday special. I know I just did a very tearful monologue. Forgive me, but uh, you know, thank you, Stan, for everything, man. And I, I, I'm going to miss you an awful lot. Paul, final thoughts. Um. Yeah, great man, uh, great fella. Really miss him, enjoyed his company. I'm glad I knew him. Um, and uh, by way of maybe trying to honor him, I guess, sort of, uh, I have a question for you two guys. If I was to hold an Esotericon in 2020, would you yes. two attend? Yes, uh, absolutely. Su- subject to work commitments, absolutely. Of course. All right, well, there you go. There'll yeah. be an Esotericon 2020, and your first two attendees, folks, Aaron Gullius and Tim Benal. Now, I don't know All how right, it's going to be. All right, we're going to hold them. <laughs> we're going to hold sure them to that one, Aaron. I'll make, sure, I'll make sure, as I did last time, it works for everyone's schedule. So there you go. Cool. Cool. All right, Aaron. Uh, any final thoughts before we uh, sail off into the sunset and close out the book on the holiday special? Final thoughts? I uh, I think that the one thing I would say is I want to tell people out there who might not, who might not know all about the history of Stan and the history of ufology, but who are interested in the subject. It wasn't always like what you see today. There used to be people like Stan and Stan wasn't the only one who was like Stan. There were other people who were good and honorable and decent and, 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 and opinionated, but still fair. And, you know, there's nothing stopping us from being like that again. There's nothing stopping anybody from having integrity and being a decent human being uh, like Stan was. Um, the media may have changed. The Internet may have changed. You can, you can still, you know, go out there and not be an asshole, you know. So I, I think that the biggest lesson that we can learn from Stan is how to be a professional, um, how to be a good researcher, how to present things in a way where it's clear that you're talking to everybody. You're not just talking to your clique of people who always agree with you because Stan would always talk to people who didn't agree with him because that was the job. And I think yeah. people in ufology have lost sight of, of how to talk to an audience. And I, I, I think Stan is, is inspirational for, for any number of reasons, just from a professional standpoint. But I, I think his, his fairness in dealing with, with, with his critics I think is generosity in dealing with everybody. These are things we, it doesn't cost anything to be like that. And, right. and so go be, go be like that. You know, that's, that's what I said. I like Ike. All right. Well, I stand, stand. Go ahead, Paul. there you go. I was just going to say, I like Ike and I, 
I fan Stan. Yay. Nice. You know, there was oh, a kinder, gosh. gentler time. There are better there are better yep. ways of doing it. Aaron, that was awesome. You hit it right on the nose. Thank you. Uh the last thing I'll say and I'll send you guys off into the night is this uh when I closed out a uh, holiday special a few years ago, I kind of like – I listened to it later, and I was like, oh, I'm a dope. But I, I closed it out, and, I'll, I, and I'm going to close it out the same way tonight because the more time went by and life unfolded, I kind of changed my opinion of it. And because I said at the end of that show, I, I closed it out with Stan. I said, I love you, man. I love you, Stan. And I love you guys, man. You guys are a part of my life. You've been on the show for, Paul, you've been on the show for like 15 years probably, man. You know, as long as I've had Stan on the show, I think you were on before the first Christmas episode or the first holiday show. Uh, yeah, I think you so. You know, and Aaron, you and I talk every <laughs> every day. So, every day, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. I think it's important to to let everybody else out there know, especially this time of year, it's the holiday special. That, like, you guys are important parts of my life, man, and I, I appreciate you guys. Absolutely. Ditto. Same here, Tim, and mostly Aaron. There you go. <laughs> I'd expect nothing less you're, from you. You're both Paul, off. But you know both, what I'm saying. You're both man. off. There is nobody that's, that's I'd rather the... go see a baseball game in Detroit than Aaron. <laughs> I, 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 I'm going to assume that's a compliment. You are, the, you are the only person I've ever seen a baseball with baseball game with in Detroit, Paul. So oh. that's. <laughs> There you go. All well, right. And, and, and well, on that note, that's, <laughs> that's how we'll end the holiday special. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate it. Like I said, Paul, uh, and as you noted, it's, it's been a cathartic experience. And uh, I, I both dreaded and look forward to this episode uh, to celebrate Stan in the way that he deserved. So I couldn't have done it without you guys. Paul, thank you very much. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for doing it. Always good to talk to you. And, Aaron, always good to talk to you as well. Absolutely. And thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, audience. <laughs> I like that. Really thank All you, right. audience. Oh, he's one up to me. Oh. Yes, of course. <laughs> thank you, audience. All right. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. night.